and good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another side of midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when Merry Christmas, everyone. This show is going to be a very um, interesting show. This is kind of one of our two major Christmas presents to our audience for the uh, end of the year. The solstice period. No, we don't need that video. I don't know why that's popped up. Uh, why is that popped up? That's bizarre. Okay. Get rid of that. Okay. Uh, sorry, real-time backstage radio. I'm sorry we were not on the air live last night. Uh, we had, as they say euphemistically in the NASA trade, a major systems failure. Translation, the furnace went out. And the... Uh, uh, Temperatures in the studio literally were to- so low that I obviously could not sit here and do a program for three hours with my feet falling off because they became chunks of ice. So that has been fixed. You may hear heaters in the background. Uh, there are repairmen on call. Hopefully they'll get here uh, sometime next week uh, after tomorrow. Uh, I mean, this is a very old house, a very old, it's kind of like a hacienda sitting on the edge of a cliff uh, covered with adobe, and uh, it's, the location is beautiful, the house is wonderful, but there's some very old stuff in it, like the furnace, I think, is something like 50 years, it's as old, I believe, if, I'm, if memory serves, as the last mission to the moon, the Apollo 17 mission, which literally arrived back from the moon, uh, tomorrow, 50 years ago, tomorrow, which at the uh, beginning of the third hour will be 50 years ago today. So, I mean, you know, this is all timing, 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 timing. Okay. So this is our one Christmas present. The other one I'm going to talk about in a couple of minutes for our, our very faithful audience. Uh, Christmas and New Year's are a very special time for people who do this on the radio because there's a lot of folks in the audience um, who don't have anyone to be close to during the holiday season except us guys sitting here talking into microphones. And, of course, uh, Robin is not with me, so I'm very conscious of that. So on Christmas Eve, we're going to have a live show. And on Christmas, uh, Christmas, on New Year's Day, day, night, we'll have a live show. Um there's no use, you know, doing a live show on, Christ- on, on New Year's Eve because everybody's going to be out partying or at home partying, and uh, we've got some excellent stuff to show you again. So, I mean, we've been kind of storing up really good programming in the in the bank, so it will not hurt you to hear one or two of those shows again. Uh, on Christmas Eve, which is December 24th, which is a week from to last night, um, we're going to have something very special, and I will tell you about that momentarily. But let me kind of swing into the news because we have a lot to go through. And there are some things going on in the news that I believe are related to the successful, the extraordinarily successful first test Artemis mission. So if you go to the other side of midnight.com for you people who are new to the show, and you click on tonight's banner, which says very um, uh, reflectively, 
Fantastic Paintings of the Moon, Artemis Confirms Astronaut Alan Bean's Fantastic Paintings of the Moon. And we got basically the whole gang here, or almost all of them, uh, and they are going to be with us because this is going to be broadcast again a week from tonight, which will be our Christmas night show because it contains so many Easter eggs and goodies and presents. I mean, NASA has delivered the most astonishing present for the end of the year that until you listen and watch what we're going to present, you probably will not believe. So without further ado, you click on that banner. That takes you to the guest page. Under the guest page, there are some uh, yellow print, uh, which says in one line, uh, fast links to item, that's in white. You click on my name, which is in yellow. That takes you to the uh, guest page. And right there, uh, just scroll down just a little bit, uh, you will see uh, my items. And there's quite a few tonight. So item number one, this is, our, again, the NASA blog devoted to the Artemis mission or the Artemis program, as it really is. And that's an update. If you click on that, it's, uh, they have um, uh, brought the uh, uh, recovered Orion spacecraft uh, back to land. It's been offloaded. Uh, it will be put on an airplane, probably a C-117, flown to Cape Canaveral, where they're planning to do a very exhaustive diagnostic, and they're going to unload the onboard data storage of several of the experiments that were carried for almost a month into lunar orbit and cislunar space. Cislunar space, for definition, is the space between the Earth and the Moon. Anyway, what's really intriguing, and it's going to be part of our conversation uh, later tonight, uh, from one of our sources, we have learned that the extraordinary high-res, high-color, high-latitude, state-of-the-art digital camera imaging, not the GoPros we've been looking at, but the real, you know, very expensive tailor-made cameras that recorded the passes by the moon and the Earth eclipsed by the moon and all the amazing stuff like Earthrise from the, uh, from the spacecraft when they whipped around the moon to come home. All of that, we have seen kind of like pale echoes of the really good data that they have yet to provide us. Now, here's where things get weird. If this is a priority, if offloading the science data including the radiation from the measurements on the on the dummies and the uh, uh, you know the the vest covered uh, female um, plasticine bodies that were in the uh, command module to basically look at dosimeter radiation levels and screening of of certain vests for uh, uh, female anatomy versus male anatomy all of that if that's of a priority and importance you would think that even on the Portland, even on the ship, when they brought the uh, spacecraft into what's called the well deck and then drained the water and was sitting there on its little cradle, you would think that it would have been a very high priority to download all that data. You hook up cables. You know, you're not doing it through the air. You hook up cables, and even if it's gigabytes, you know, it transfers in, in minutes or seconds. They are not going to look at or download 
the video camera data, the high quality still camera data, the 4K uh, imaging of the moon and going to and from until, wait for it, until the end of January. What? I mean, that's the data on which the astonishing color and geometry and architecture and crystalline reflections of this extraordinary uh, glass-like architecture all over the moon cannot help but show up because these are high-quality cameras. The signal-to-noise should be, you know, basically much, much better than the GoPros. And if you can see it in the GoPros, modified, of course, you should be able to see it crystal clear. So they're not even looking at this until the end of January? Does anybody find anything, besides me, of course, kind of wrong with this picture? In other words, I think this is deliberate foot dragging because they know what's on those videos. They know what's on that digital imaging, and they're dragging their feet like crazy not to have to show the American people, the taxpayers who spent $4.1 billion for this first test mission, and, of course, the people of the rest of the world. Now, how long can they play this game? Well, if they play it long enough, in other words, I think part of the strategy is Given the rate at which news is being flung at us, all kinds of nonsense news, things that are just kind of like, you know, distraction, 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 like what the heck is, uh, you know, Musk doing with Twitter? I mean, come on, really, folks. Is that the most important part of what Musk is doing? No, not, but it's one hell of a diversion. And while he's occupied with that, nobody says, uh, What's the status of the starship and when are you taking your eight civilian astronauts, artists, one and all, around the moon? And we'll get into that in much more detail later in the uh, in the program. Because remember, this is a Christmas present and there's all kinds of bows to be carefully unwrapped in the next three hours. So they're dragging their feet, dragging their feet on the imagery what should be stunning 4K quality digital color imagery, certainly of the close-up zipping around the moon and Earthrise and all of that, and the colors of the dome and the color contrast between the near side and the far side, all that, and they're waiting and waiting. Why are they waiting? What do they think is going to happen? Well, given human proclivity to basically look at the bright, shiny object, the most recent one, and given the incredible short half-life of human attention now to anything, I mean, have you heard anybody mention uh, the DART mission to knock an asteroid out of kilter and, you know, create a huge hyperdimensional blow-up between space-time and some other set of space spaces? Of course not. Is anybody pursuing the Italians on the 600-plus CubeSat images, the Leica uh, cams that we never got to saw, saw, see, saw, that we never saw. No, of course not, because people's attention span, which is about three nanoseconds now, has moved on. So I think part of the strategy with delaying till the end of January, uh, is a certain engineer listening carefully, is because 
NASA is hoping, based on the statistical data, based on polling, based on profiles, based on public media surveys, based on experience, that by the end of January, nobody's going to give a damn about Artemis. It'll be way, way back in the rear end, you know, mirror. And we'll all be on to the next crisis, you know, the Ukraine war, what Putin's up to, what Musk is doing with Twitter, and, you know, the, the who knows, maybe, you know, the arrest and imprisonment of uh, Donald Trump because of the confiscated papers at Mar-a-Lago. Who knows? It could be anything. All or none of the above. But in that huge welter of relentless fire hose type news, what kind of passes for news these days, the real news, the fact that NASA has so stunningly confirmed the data from Apollo, the data from the Japanese, the data on the lunar domes from the Chinese, and the data from one of their own astronauts walking the surface of the moon, the incredibly brilliant and synoptic and renaissance man, Alan Bean, engineer, astronaut, and fine artist with an eye for astonishing, not yet ready for time time uh, detail, Alan Bean, all of that's going to be forgotten because by the end of January, nobody except us crazies are going to give a damn about Artemis or what Orion saw. And that is their bet, that it basically doesn't matter if, if the tree falls in the forest, as long as nobody pays attention to it, it does not make a sound. On that note, if you look at item number two, this is really weird because on Thursday, Thursday last, um, the NASA folks were going to do another spacewalk. The astronauts were going to go outside and they were going to uh, continue the upkeep and repair of the space station. They've got uh, uh, the Russians have some some equipment and hardware to rearrange, and the Americans are going to be installing another set of the new so-called IROSA satellite um, uh, solar panel arrays that will provide added power to run the experiments and maintain the, uh, the habitability of the space station. Because when you put solar panels in space, uh, like the original ones that are still attached, and make that incredible kind of butterfly effect when you come up on the station in a spacecraft, uh, because of radiation damage, uh, they have been losing efficiency. So I think their overall power efficiency is now down about 30%. So these new solar arrays are designed to be put in place to up the power of the space station. And actually, when the astronauts are done with their uh, mechanical engineering, the total power availability of the space station adding old and new panels will be increased by about 30 percent uh, over what it is now so that all came to a screeching halt on thursday evening when somebody looked outside the window or looked at a television screen or whatever and saw the soyuz ferry spacecraft which is designed uh being docked there to act as a uh a rescue ferry to take the astronauts home to Earth should they have to abandon the space station. You know, this is the ultimate, you know, abandon ship, abandon ship. Well, that was not available, and we're still kind of uncertain as to the details of whether it is available because they looked out the window or they looked at their TV screens, and just before this spacewalk on Thursday 
evening, uh, three days ago, the Soyuz was leaking coolant like crazy and creating a total interplanetary snowstorm. It's quite dramatic, and I, I think that the video uh, is available there, I believe. Uh, there is video in the news item that I uh, linked to. Uh, I'm hoping it is. I sent it to Keith. Uh, I'm hoping it's there somewhere. If it's not, it's just uh, you can Google and look at it. it, it, it it's quite dramatic. Uh, anyway, here's what's weird. The timing. Because the the, the wise heads now uh, inside NASA are basically saying this was an incredible you know, one in a billion micrometeorite hit or maybe a uh, fragment of some ancient spacecraft in Earth orbit that intersected the uh, space station and punctured a hole in a coolant line allowing the venting of the coolant into space. Well, the timing just before a spacewalk is weird. The timing just after Artemis successful return is weird. And in fact, this is the biggest potential crisis in the 20-plus year history of the International Space Station. And the idea that this could happen when engineers have deliberately put shielding around those fragile parts of the spacecraft to prevent this from happening, um, I'm just wondering if this is not uh, more of the subtle and not-so-subtle messaging that was occurring during Artemis. Remember, we had two bizarre communications dropouts that still have not been really adequately explained during the Artemis mission. The 47 one, almost immediately, and then several days later, maybe a week or two, we had a four and a half hour cessation of communications because the excuse was, oh, the engineers have to reconfigure something at the Goldstone. I'm thinking outside the box, which is what you uh, all pay me to do, because yeah, really. And my thinking is this is part of a trend curve of upping the ante, increasing the intensity of the threat to NASA, to the institution. Basically, if you show the world what Artemis really found on the moon in these stunning high quality videos and images, then the astronauts, you know, it's like, oh, you got a really fine space, space station there. Be a shame if um, <clears throat> something happened to it. Uh, I can't prove a word of this, but the trend curve is not good. And given how we can demonstrate that NASA has been absolutely lying to the American people and the world about what's really on the moon, and I'm going to do that tonight in the next uh, couple hours, uh, I think it is part of the gathering uh, database of uh, what do they call that circumstantial evidence and believe it or not you can convict people in a court of law on circumstantial evidence which brings me to item number three uh, this week uh, a couple three days ago the president of the United States Joseph Biden released another treasure trove of Kennedy assassination files. Remember, the deadline was during the Trump administration, and Trump did not comply with the deadline. There are thousands of documents still waiting to be revealed. And again, we're now past the deadline. So the current administration, the current president, he released another chunk, but we hear they're not all out there yet. 
So this is your second Christmas present uh, on Christmas Eve. Robert Morningstar, who has been a stalwart independent investigator, bringing all of his multidisciplinary skills and talents and expertise to trying to figure out what the hell really happened with John Fitzgerald Kennedy. We're going to do three hours on Christmas Eve as a Christmas present to the American people and the world, decoding not only the latest documents, but going all the way back to the beginning of Robert's model, his theory of the case, which we spend an awful lot of time in Hoboken going over when I lived just across the river from his Riverside apartment there in Manhattan. And we're going to take you from A to B to C to D. So by the end of the three hours, you will understand more of the context of why Kennedy and the program to go to the moon and the efforts to get rid of the reality of what's waiting on the moon for all humanity. And finally, the efforts to kill him and basically get rid of Khrushchev in terms of their agreement to go to the moon together. It's all part of one sticky picture. So that's what we're going to do next Christmas Eve night. And by the time you hear this on Christmas Day, it will already have taken place the night before. So obviously you're going to want to join Club 19.5. You're going to go out, you're get, want to get your neighbors, your friends, your family, your distant cousins, everybody you can think of to join the club because we need to now pool our resources to conduct the real battle, which is not for the reality of what is out there. The reality of E.T. ancient presence on the moon, an extraordinary, stunning, confirmable architecture we need to address with the American people what the hell it means and why any of us should give a damn. And I guarantee you, dollars and eighty beans, that most people, if you ask them, you know, forget the idea that they believe or don't believe, but just ask them kind of theoretically, what do you think would happen to humankind if we discovered there were ancient, extraordinary ruins left by ETs or aliens on the moon? And they will not be able to tell you what will happen to humankind. They haven't a clue. They are clueless. They have been deliberately kept clueless. No one discusses what happens when disclosure actually occurs. Which brings me to item number four. There was a flurry earlier this week because earlier this month, the uh, National Ignition Facility, which is part of the uh, uh, Department of Energy, which is in charge of nuclear physics and nuclear weapons and nuclear energy and regulation and um, research, uh, pulled off a real breakthrough in terms of three-dimensional mainstream science and physics. They conducted a fusion uh, energy experiment in California, and they, for the first time, got more energy out than they put in. And of course, the whole mainstream you know, press went crazy, nuts, and there was a formal DOE announcement uh, later in the week. And uh, one of the things that really is fascinating to me is uh, I've been expecting this development for literally uh, a lifetime. I remember growing up in the 1950s and 
you know, reading about Project Sherwood, which was the effort to basically harness the power of the uh, thermonuclear weapons technology that uh, we had developed, uh, you know, in, in contratemp to the Soviet Union. And there was always this bright side, this promise, this hope, this carrot way out in front that someday humanity would harness the power of the sun, the power of fusing light atoms together in a reactor, which would not only provide limitless power from uh, tritium and uh, heavy hydrogen in seawater, but it would produce it with no pollution and no carbon footprint and in, uh, unlimited quantities that would be, as some of the uh, propaganda was written back then, uh, too cheap to meter. And they all told us, well, it's not going to happen tomorrow or even day after tomorrow. This is 1950s. But it's going to happen within like 30 years. And every time I have checked in with the status of this research, it has always been, oh, it's not here yet. We're getting closer, but we'll have it in 30 years. Now, with this major breakthrough, for the first time in any of these experiments, the tokamaks, the laser ignition, the implosion, all of these various ways to approach fusion on Earth in a you know, controlled reactor, uh, we're being told again, well, this is a stunning engineering demonstration, but it's probably not going to be commercially available for 30 years, which, of course, is the quintessential a hallmark of that uh, uh, White Queen um, uh, statement in uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll, you know, jam yesterday, jam tomorrow, but never jam today. So what we're going to do is later on in the program, we talk about why we should give a damn about ancient ruins on the moon. I'm going to tell you where the real radically alternative power sources are going to come from. And they're not going to take 30 years to develop. They're sitting in some ancient laboratory or some ancient engineering facility on the moon tonight, somewhere buried under the surface, probably at either the North or the South Pole. And of course, it's the South Pole where the astronauts are going to land, the new Artemis generation. And one wonders if part of the reason that NASA, of course, can never cop to in public is because that's where the breakthrough in energy and the breakthrough that's going to transform Earth and liberate us from, you know, fossil fuels and global warming and all the downsides of burning dinosaurs. If that, in fact, is where the real breakthrough is coming. And this so-called announcement is just another marker on the road of distraction, disinformation, and tell them that jam is coming, but it will not be for 30 more years. And while all this was going on, something else quietly happened on Friday. Remember the South Korean unmanned moon mission called Denuri, which is a fusion of two uh, Korean terms meaning enjoy moon? Well, on Friday, it quietly slid into the beginning of its circularization of high lunar orbit. And item number five, you'll see a series of really amazing images taken from Denuri by, for some reason, a black and white camera. Although when I get time, I haven't had time because I've been preparing for tonight's show. 
I'm going to obviously see if there's really color in those black and white images and they just kind of forgot to turn it up because that has been known to happen. Remember the lacrosse imaging that turned out they look black and white, but there was color and there was color of the glass in the lacrosse imaging taken back by NASA in 2009. And finally, last but not least, um, we have item number six. The Real Enterprise video, courtesy of John Womack, our own John, who did a really yeoman service of taking the uh, NASA video that had been given to various media, had been put on Twitter, had been picked up by Space.com. Space.com put it out on their website. Uh, John took that video and simply turned back the color that was originally in the video but had been drained deliberately by NASA videographers. And that is what you see in item number six. And the rest of the morning is going to be spent discussing still frames and comparisons from this astonishing video, which leads us directly into a discussion of the one human eyewitness in the court, Your Honor, and that is the former astronaut now deceased by four years, Alan Bean, who not only was a Renaissance man, but he literally saw and created on Earth what we see in the latest imagery from Artemis of the moon. And with that, we'll take a pause. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return to talk about the impact and implications of Bean's paintings of the real moon, over 50 years old. everyone on this uh, twofold program we're doing this live on Sunday night December 18th we're going to rebroadcast for you people now listening on Christmas night this is our Christmas present to our audience the stunning confirmation to the work of a remarkable human being a first-hand eyewitness an actual astronaut an artist Alan Bean of what is waiting for all humankind on the surface of the moon. Uh, my guests this morning uh, include Andrew Curry and Ron Gerbron and Robert Morningstar and Barbara Honiger and Kinthea is going to drop in. We've got Keith Morgan waiting in the wings, John Womack, who did that wonderful transfer from the Space.com version of the original NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, video transfer from the original GoPro Artemis Orion spacecraft imagery of the total Earth eclipse from 50,000 miles beyond the moon. Uh, they're all here. All their bios are listed in the um, uh, bio section of the uh, uh, guest page. Just kind of look under bios there in that second line. And if you're missing who they are, well, they all have very long and very interesting and very uh, convergent pedigrees. So I'm going to start with one of our artists. We're going to be joined by another artist in the third hour, Georgia Lambert. You know I've introduced her a million times as our resident metaphysician, 
She worked for like a decade with uh, Manly Hall. What you don't know or may not know is she is an incredible fine artist in her own right. And I've asked her on tonight to talk both about the metaphysics of what humanity is about to undergo, enter into, the transformation that is inevitably coming. No matter what they do to delay, 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 it ain't ultimately going to work. So you kind of wonder why they're doing it. But what I really wanted her to talk about, besides the metaphysics of what we're going to be experiencing, is the art. Because, Andrew, the art of Alan Bean is so astonishing when you compare it now to the reality, not only of the latest Artemis imagery, but when you actually look at some of the Apollo imagery, which NASA has been quietly reloading to its various websites, so that when you go, you discover that it's not at all the way it appeared like 20, 30, 50 years ago, they've added the real stuff back in, quietly taken away the fake stuff, and now when the press finally gets onto this bone and begins pursuing the trail, they can look into the cameras with absolute innocence and non-candor and say, well, it's been there all along. If you were just too dumb not to go look, that's your problem. And it will all, I believe, come down to this incredible courageous hero of this transition, a guy who I wish I'd met that I've been able to talk to and show this data because to me, Alan Bean is the unsung hero of the entire Apollo program. What say you? Well, Richard, uh, thank you again for having me and everybody on the show again to discuss this. It's in becoming increasingly more important. Well, folks, Richard often, you know, again, we talk about this a lot. We do a lot of back, or passing along the baton in the back channels sort of during the week. And and Richard had passed on to a few of us. Well, it ended up being the banner, but it was just, if you look at the banner, <laughs> Richard, you want to describe the banner really quickly? No, you're the artist. Part? You describe the banner. Come on. <laughs> well, he's got a painting of Alan Beans. I don't remember which one it is. He's, he did so many paintings. And then he has it right beside an enhanced uh, uh, image of the moon. Is this from the Artemis mission, Richard? Yes, yeah, right. yeah. It's, it's obviously from the Artemis. And I'm, see, I, I took 99% of the Artemis stuff tonight from that amazing eclipse. Because you got to understand, there are, like, remember that old TV show, there are 8 million stories in the naked city? There's 80 billion, billion possible orbits you could put a spacecraft into, even orbiting the Earth. Not one of them would ever come in such a geometric fashion that when you look back at Earth, the moon would be in between. For that yep. to happen, it has to be exactly prescribed in the trajectory, in the calculations, in the computer modeling, in the heat budgets, in the power, all of the things that go into making a successful mission, that had to be factored in as a prime objective. So we got these stunning images of the Earth sliding behind the moon, seen from about 50 mile, 50,000 miles further away. So they're optically almost the same size. And from that, one learns a stunning amount about the domes on the moon that you can't learn really from any other geometry. And you would have to work really overtime to convince me that uh, that all was just 
by accident. Now, before I go on with what I want to say, and hopefully I'll remember what I want to say, but if people are doubtful about what Richard is saying, Richard, can you relate, I mean, very quickly, uh, what they did with the New Horizons um, um, uh, flyby of Pluto when they also created an eclipse? Do you remember that one? Yeah, of course. Um, Alan Stern is the prime... Uh, mission scientist, the principal investigator of the uh, unmanned New Horizons mission, whose job it was many years ago, like a decade ago, to leave Earth on the fastest rocket trip ever, ever sent into space to try to get to Pluto, the last known planet at that time in the observable solar system, and fly by within a reasonable slice of, of scientist's career or human lifetime. It took him 10 years to get there and they had to launch it on the fastest rocket and make a couple of flybys of, you know, a few planets and do slingshots and gravitational accelerations and all that. Ultimately, they wound up flying by Pluto and they arranged a trajectory so that after they, you know, photographed and swept by the day side, the trajectory would take them into the shadow, which is echoes of the Mariner 4 trajectory that went to Mars back in 1965, which deliberately was vectored into the shadow uh, of, the, of the planet Mars, both as seen from the sun and seen from Earth, so that the spacecraft instruments could sample uh, what it's like to be in the dark and what happens when you transition uh, with the radio signal being locked on the, uh, the big antennas on Earth, and you see the radio signal transiting the edge of the planet and the atmosphere before it goes into eclipse, or technically it's called an occultation. Anyway, they arranged the same geometry at Pluto, so they both went into a solar eclipse, meaning they went into the physical shadow of Pluto, and they also arranged it so they went into a uh, radio occultation uh, by Pluto of the spacecraft so they could measure the atmosphere of Pluto, which shouldn't really have an atmosphere, like four billion miles from the center of the solar system. And in fact, the atmosphere in recent years has been getting greater, not less, which is counterintuitive because Pluto is moving in its very elliptical orbit away from the sun. The temperatures are falling. The stuff in the atmosphere should be snowing out on the ground uh, like a, a partial component of the Mars atmosphere, the CO2 does every Martian year. And so it was very unusual uh, that the atmosphere would behave that way. And the scientists obviously very logically wanted to measure as much as they could to figure out what the hell is going on. Well, good luck, because it's got a hyperdimensional answer that they'll never get in terms of three-dimensional science. But that's another program. Anyway, yeah. When, yeah, they, but, when, the, when they flew by, yeah. they went into the shadow, and then they looked back and took these stunning color pictures, yeah. which show this gorgeous blue ring all around Pluto as seen from deep in the shadow on the night side looking toward the center of the solar system four billion miles away with the sun scattering toward the spacecraft, toward the cameras deep in the shadow moving parallel to the shadow at that point, you know, leaving Pluto, leaving the inner solar system, leaving the outer solar system, heading across the, the Kuiper belt But that look-back image was stunning because, just like Earth, the atmosphere of Pluto, only it's radically different than Earth, was brilliant blue because of something called Rayleigh 
scattering. In fact, all the atmospheres, regardless of their composition, all over the solar system, in fact, on planets all over the galaxy, and in every other galaxy you can see, if you go into the shadow and look at the forward scattered starlight from their suns, the atmospheres will be blue because blue light and the size of molecules that make up the composition of these diverse worlds are just about the same size regardless of their composition. And so you get physical geometric blue scattering because the molecules are about the same size as the wavelengths of blue light. Why is the sky blue, mommy? Because of rabies scattering. <clears throat> Andrew? Oh, sorry. <laughs> thought you dropped off there. Yeah, no. Well, my point, Richard, was, and I know we went off on a bit of a tangent, but is that NASA does do this, and they do it to measure – I mean, they have their their um, their mainstream ideas, but you know, as Richard's covered many times, that there is obviously some backroom investigations going on. So I just wanted to put that out there. But anyways, when Richard did this, folks, and everybody listening on the panel, I was stunned because – if people are not seeing the banner right now, I'll explain it. So in this cutaway of uh, Alan Bean's painting, and I don't know which astronaut this is in the image, Richard. You might. It, it is Gene Cernan standing at Taurus Littro, and okay. uh, and you can he, you can see it's Cernan because uh, Bean identifies it in his his, his you know captions right. as 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 uh, where they are. And if the astronaut's wearing the red stripe, he's the commander, and the commander of Apollo 17 was Gene Cernan. So we know by the color codes on the spacesuits uh, who's doing what. Okay. Yeah. So here's the point. There is a radical shift in Alan Bean's painting. Now, I'm not saying it just happened in this one, because I believe it was happening in a gradual kind of way, but it was kind of dramatic. So before these paintings, this series of paintings that he did, and remember, folks, we talked about this last week. We talked about this is my how I came on the show in 2015. Again, I can't believe it's been that long. But anyways, this is what sort of grabbed me and how sort of Richard and I started our dialogue was that this guy was showing something. Okay, look, folks, I know a lot of you are going to say, oh, no, 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 it's just artistic interpretation. And that's what Alan Bean says on the surface. You know, he says, oh, I just, you know, I'm, this is how it felt to be on the moon. Well, that's kind of an obvious statement. And at the time, we thought, we sort of discussed when we did that early show and down through the time, we sort of said, oh, yeah, Alan Bean may be leaking, like uh, some kind of memory of what he was seeing. Because what you see in this image, this painting, is a patch patchwork quilt of colors, beautiful pastel colors. And when Richard put it beside this enhancement of the Artemis moon, and I remembered what Jonathan did with those, with the video from last week of the Artemis flyby, and the, the, again, these beautiful colors, lining it up with that Spanish, what was it again, Richard, that Spanish um, glass? It's called, it's called the Crystal Palace in Madrid. And and we're going to show some examples of all of this. So, uh. Yeah, and the same lighting effects of the sun coming through the glass was happening all over the floor. And I said to Richard, I went, Richard, you know what? The more I think about Alan Bean, because Alan Bean is a very figuristic painting, right? He's not – he's – he he definitely loosened up his style. Like he he laid down a lot of um, a ground, is what we call like a rough surface, and then he would paint. 
whereas before he really would paint in a smooth way well, on his his old technique yeah. was very reminiscent of my old yes. friend Chesley Bonstell. Yeah. Bonstell began as an architect. He was actually involved in the design of the Golden Gate Bridge, my favorite bridge anywhere in the planet, and I have the incredible fortune, as does Kinthea, hint hint, to look out your windows and see the Golden Gate in all different lighting at sunset, at sunrise, during thunderstorms, on clear days, cloudy days, when the fog is creeping on little cat feet under the bridge. Uh, you know, Chesley was deeply involved in why that bridge looks so incredible and like 23rd century, even though it was designed and built in the 1930s. During the height, by the way, of the Depression, when Americans still did great things and kind of ignored the fact that they were undergoing this incredible economic catastrophe. Um, he then migrated into Hollywood and into doing paintings and backgrounds. They're called Sykes, uh, short for Cycloramas, for major you know, tentpole movies in Hollywood. He did the uh, lunar impressions for Destination Moon uh, and a whole bunch of other uh, movies like uh, um, uh, uh, When Worlds Collide. He did the yeah. end paintings there where he clearly is showing that the astronauts and the, and the civilians who were rescued by spaceship from a dying Earth which is being hit by uh, Bellis, a, a planet, coming at us from outside the solar system and they migrate to the planet of the star that's killing the earth and the, and the solar system and they land and they open the doors and they look out and on Chesley's painting there's these stunning pyramidal and other ancient architectural ruins right there in the in the foreground of a sunrise on another world so Chesley was not an innocent bystander he knew something and he kept encoding it in his later paintings. Well, to get from architect to space painter par excellence, he went through the same process that decades later Alan Bean did. He brought engineering skill and he created physical models. He created yes. drawings. He did measurements. He did something so unartistic as measure light values and geometric angles and all of his paintings were constructed, so he really earned the title of the father of space illustrations because it wasn't just, oh, this is what it might be in imagination. It's as it really would have been if you'd been an astronaut looking from the point of view of most of Chesley's paintings. And Alan Bean followed that curve until something happened. And I've actually done yeah. a little research, uh, Andrew, as to when. Okay. He started out in his first paintings, which were done very mathematically and geometrically and very accurate uh, in 1981. Yes. And then he kept going and going and going. But it wasn't until the 1990s, and that's when we held at the National Press Club our first major There's Amazing Stuff All Over the Moon press conference which was even written up uh, on the front page of the Washington Post. And I know now through a direct source, who I cannot name, unfortunately, that after the press conference, this source, who knew Alan Bean very, very well, asked him point blank, is Hoagland crazy for all the things that he's saying are on the moon? And Bean said to this 
interlocutor who then reported back to me, but in a way I cannot prove, I'm sorry, he said, no, Hoagland's not. And then in his artwork, suddenly he entered his imaginative, speculative, freewheeling, this is what it felt like period where he began to draw and paint and illustrate the paintings you're going to see tonight from both me and from Robert, Robert Morningstar, which are, of course, the real moon, the moon that NASA has been hiding from all of us for over 50 years. And and to add to that, Richard, just so people who might be new to Alan Bean, when Richard says he was a precision painter, he was. He was very illustrative, and the skies were deep, dark black, and the landscape was very, very gray on the moon. And then he made, as Richard said, this transition to this, this these Monet-like pastels. It just bleaching the – not bleaching. What's the right – it was staining the moon surface in his paintings. I mean, just stunning. And that's when, again, Richard has been doing this research. I said, Richard, he did it deliberately. And then Richard said to me, there may be a point where he's, and so that's how we got to this point that maybe it wasn't so much an uncon, like an unravel. No, I don't think it was return memories. He came out from under the drugs that they were all subjected to to make them forget, forget, forget. Remember that line from Star Trek II? Where where uh, Spock says, remember? That's well, right. they didn't undergo a Spock pinch to remember, and the drugs didn't wear off, except they actually do wear off. They had to be reinstated, and I know that from the experience of Buzz Aldrin. But with Bean, I think he was able, until the very end of his life, to maintain the pretense that he was just having an artistic flight of fancy, Absolutely. and that was his Emily Dickinson way of laying out for all of humanity, all of the Americans who paid for the trip to and from the most extraordinary trip of his life to the most extraordinary place he had ever been, the reality of ancient, extraordinary E.T., Arthur C. Clarke, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, real moon. Yeah, I, oh, go ahead. Ron? Uh, what, what, yeah, I just wondered what happened to Barbara. Well, she'll rejoin uh, us if she got – She's there. Well, I mean, you gave her a 15-minute intro and then went into something else. So I, I, I'm a little – I got a little – I'm here. Okay, hi, dear. Barbara will be on. Andrew, continue, please. Well, again, just to, I just want to – because I know I'll be – well, not tuning out. I'll be here, but I'll be, I'll be quieting down. Um, it, it's, again, you know, being – used models he used he set up lighting he was very precise in other words this he was guy an engineer was, for god's exactly, sake exactly and folks he literally would talk he before he actually began painting because he did paint I've, I've seen some of his still lifes which were interesting but he actually says in in the literature like he talks about it oh i asked my my um cohorts what do they think think i should go and paint and they were all enthusiastically saying do it and I find that a very interesting – Well, wait, wait, wait. Let's hit it right on the head. Was he the designated hitter? Because remember, he didn't just paint his own mission with Pete Conrad, Apollo right. 12. He painted all of the crews, all of the guys who walked on the moon, and I'm beginning to think this was one hell of a counterinsurgency inside the astronaut corps using Bean's painting so they could tell the truth. About what's really on the moon. 
Yeah, I think there's some. I think there's an argument there now, Richard. I, I really, because again, folks, I'm going to tell you, this guy used reference photos. He used models. He lit it in certain ways. So to just suddenly go, I'm going to be Monet-like and just be kind of expressive. <laughs> I, hey, it's in us. It's in all of us. And he, look, you could say, no, 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 no. That's his artistic development. Oh, Ron would probably argue with me. No, no, no. I've seen it. I, I was a curator in a gallery and all that. I get it. But no, this guy is a military guy. He knows how to follow orders. You can still read that in his descriptions of each of these paintings that he did. And he's suddenly letting out this really artistic, you know, scarf around the neck moment. No, 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 no. This is, this is more. And I, I think there's an argument. That's what I think. Uh, since you mentioned me, I have a different interpretation of what he was doing. Okay. okay we've got, uh, let me yeah. see. We've got uh, well, it's uh, just a matter of seconds. We we, uh, we have four minutes. Like, we have four whole minutes. Go okay. for it. It was like uh, automatic. You compare it to automatic writing. You know the spiritualist thing. But the idea with the automatic writing is that you clear your mind and you let your unconscious uh, be guided by your subconscious into uh, writing something. You know, or outputting something. And an artist can do the same thing. And I think. All the stuff buried in his subconscious, even his unconscious mind, after all of the grooming that they did to uh, make sure that they didn't say anything in public that would embarrass NASA or reveal things. Um, you know, they were just being used as astronauts to as conduits to this information, but they weren't meant to share it. So with all that bottled up in his uh, interior mind structure, it was coming out through his painting. That's how that happens. That's why they use painting and art for therapy sometimes. And, well, who, I, well, and, and, and hang on, Andrew. Let me use yeah. the proper intro. One of Andrew's backgrounds is an art therapist. Take it away, Mr. Therapist. Well, I don't disagree with you, Ron, and that was originally how I my argument was uh, when I first came on the show seven years ago. And I felt the same way that this is, well, like I said earlier, leaking. You know, it's, it's a sort of an unconscious thing that's leaking, and he's just a kind of expressing himself because that's potentially what he saw on the moon. But I'm telling you, there's the guy was a man of precision, and just these paintings alone, to change the side by styles so dramatically. Yeah, that's and coincidentally with our first major press conference. And exactly. remember, if it was unconscious, Ron. When he's asked yeah. if Hoagland's crazy, he would have said, of course he's crazy, because his yeah. whole training was that NASA is infallible. NASA kept him alive. He went to the moon because of NASA. He painted all his early stuff from 81 to the early 90s, like the NASA mantra. If he, if he was into that mold and this was all subconscious, his conscious mind, when he was asked the question, would have been, of course, Hoagland's crazy. Now, again, I can't prove that conversation happened, which, of course, is the sad story of so much of this because it's that intangible where the reader, the viewer, the listener has to ultimately look at the evidence and come to their own free will decision. Well, here's one more angle, and I know we're really close up, up against the, the break, but... No, we got about a minute. Okay, but Richard, I know we see the Apollo images and the, and the video and everything looks very bleached out, etc., but you've got to kind of wonder – well, I have to kind of wonder, did somebody feed him pictures that 
you know, that showed the color. All, you know, I, 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 you know, it's just it's a thought. I have we, we had no way to prove that whatsoever. But did somebody feed him something from the inside that he could or even? Or you know, did the drugs? That could be a trigger. Did the drugs just wear off? Yeah. In other words, without your booster shots, your programming does not hold. You're on the other side of midnight. This is our Christmas present to our audience. Twice fold tonight and then on Christmas night. Merry Christmas, everyone. This is a Christmas present for the world. The revelation in 2023. Because this is when it's going to happen. I now can give you a kind of a year-long window. I think it's going to be sooner rather than later. Because I think, remember, the NDAA is coming up fast on the inside and that's what Barbara is here to remind us of when we get to that part of the program. But as the lawyers say, what we're doing now is we're laying foundation of Alan Bean's incredible leak of the real moon. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. And welcome back, everyone, on this uh, Christmas program, the Christmas edition, echoed twice in our programming schedule on this night of uh, December 18th, 2022, and again on Christmas night itself, because we're presenting probably the most important Christmas present in the modern history of the world that one can imagine, the connection between the American Apollo and Artemis programs, their successive astronauts, what they are photographing and will photograph live on the moon, counterpointed by a private expedition spearheaded by a gentleman named Elon Musk on a spacecraft called the Starship and eight artist astronauts who will follow in the footsteps of Alan Bean and become the first non-governmental eyewitnesses of what's really on the moon. And this could take place as early as next year. So welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight. Um, I'd like to go to Robert next, Robert Morningstar, who you can read his bio. He's a, a civilian intelligence analyst. He's got all kinds of fancy background in AI and psychology, and, and he uh, does deep dives into the deep state. Uh, but tonight he's going to talk about some fascinating encoding at a higher level that I think kind of belies Ron's facile explanation that it's just kind of subconscious leakage. I think there's more multi-level messaging in Bean's painting that even I or Andrew have uh, hitherto believed. And so without further ado, Robert, what do you got for us? Well, Richard, thank you for having me on the program. And I'm really happy for the audience that was listening last week and listening this week because you are witnessing discovery in the moment that it happens. In regard to this photograph, or, well, it's a photograph to us, but the painting of Alan Beam uh, 
traipsing around the moon uh, in a really golden, golden landscape. It struck me last week, uh, not just last week, it's been for over three or four years that I've been on the show regularly and we often refer to these photos and it's always struck me that his photo, his uh, paintings are dense. There's uh, a texture to them that is not like looking at an ordinary painting on a flat surface. And last week I was struck as we were discussing these things. I had an insight into some of the um, the geometry of this particular painting showing him walking across a golden lit, sunlit uh, moonscape. And I said to you on the program, he's also embedded some Egyptian hieroglyphics in there because that's what hit me. It reminded me, the color reminded me of a certain temple in Egypt called the Temple of Philae. And that's the first picture under my items, the Temple of Philae. The, uh, the color, the sandstone, and then the reliefs, that's the word. Uh, the painting by Andine has a bottom well, relief. They're actually negative reliefs in that they're incised into the masonry. Right. Well, here's... here's uh, well, you're so so they're the not really reliefs, they're incisions. Yeah, but the term is so-called bas-relief because the center section rises out of it. But that's a, uh, the term I'm applying it to uh, Alan Bean's painting, the facsimile of it. So I was struck by that. And as I looked at the picture in this new light, that maybe there were Egyptian hieroglyphics embedded there, I looked at the upper right-hand corner, and I noticed uh, the uppermost right-hand corner I, I when you say the figure. upper right, you mean the uh, item number two, the Alan Bean original painting full. The Alan Bean painting, yes. The item number two. Now, now this again is from Taurus Litro. This is, I believe, uh, Cernan, you know, galloping, loping in that one-sixth gravity, you know, uh, bunny hop uh, across right. the moon. Right. And also uh, important, he was, uh, they were exploring Shorty Crater and looking for the oldest stuff on the moon and you know the rust color is what uh, came out the orange colored soil but that's that's uh, beside the point i took this painting during the week and i started to work on it trying to bring out that figure in the upper right uh corner that i saw as a facsimile of isis at the temple of philae so i reversed the red and the blue and that produces picture number three red x blue red uh, for blue reversal and that brought out more detail it darkened the the uh the glyphs as i will call them and revealed some new areas reversing the color changed the contrast as well and then i noticed i did extract the upper most uh, upper right corner where i saw the figurine oh That's my item god look at that do you see? And not only is the geometry of the head, the shoulder, the arm pointing forward and the uprightness and length of the, the figurine in proportion to the figure on the Temple of Philae. We're now um, looking at number four. We're, yeah, we're looking at number four. So I took this image uh, off the first picture, the Temple of Philae. And because it was facing in the opposite direction, I reversed it. So you can really see that uh, the, the clue, I consider this the first clue aside from 
the the scroll of Toth, as I call that center section. If you'll go back to sem, uh, number one, if you enlarge it, that section between the astronaut and the two boulders, if you look up along that slope, you'll see um, uh, rows of figurines uh, in uh, in relief, I'll call it, contrast, light, and darkness. So after going there, I went back to the center of the picture and I enlarged that. And I found standing right behind the astronaut, as I said, the contrast changed, but I found what I now call the eye of Ra. Ah. If, you, if you enlarge that, you'll see there's a pit and the pit looks quadrangular and to the right of it is a black hole and an oblong blue field, which I take to be the eye of Ra. So now, this comes, now comes the, the part where I blew my own mind. <laughs> <laughs> and that's very hard for Robert. This is, yeah, this is, how, this is how insight works. I've been working on this, and so I improve the contrast as, as well as reversing the color, enlarging that section. I increased the contrast, and that really darkened the, the relief, those rows on the left and scattered across. So I said to myself, oh, you know what I can do? I'm going to emboss this, right? When you have something that has a lot of depth and texture, you can run a, pro, uh, a, a function in uh, computer graphics called to emboss. So I ran emboss. And then after I ran emboss, the picture disappeared and this pattern appeared. And then I ran one more operation, which is called equalize. And when I did equalize, figure number six came out. Oh that my. is what is under the painting in, uh, say, contours. If you were to touch the painting and run your fingers over the painting, this is the contour of the surface of that painting. It's, it's, it's a physical texture. And and the yeah. way and the way he worked, Andrew, is he used an engineering approach. He didn't just use oil paintings or pastels or watercolors. He literally used acrylics and other materials that made a three-dimensional canvas layout so that there was a tactile experience exactly. besides the visual. He's yeah. there. He created elevation. He created depressions, troughs. And there I say craters, because the moment that I saw this picture, my mind went back to what, uh, almost 10 years ago, when I found a frame, I, and it was in a videotape, there were, there was no, uh, it was in a video released by Japan. So I froze the picture and I shot it. I said, my God, that looks like highways, bridges, excavation, engineering on the moon. And I, I shot two pictures off my screen, and I'll talk about them later, but those pictures are what came to mind when I saw this contour, these, these shapes on this picture, this little part of the frame. So I decided to go out into the entire full frame and do the same thing again. Ah. I reversed the red and the blue, and then I increased the contrast and lowered the brightness and fixed the gamma. Then I went and did the um, this operation of um, embossing. Embossing, and then I hit the equalize, and what came out was this incredible pattern. And instantly, once again, in the big picture, 
The first picture was reminiscent of a section that I'd seen and shot. This is, this is the big picture. And I went back to that same place again. So I made it my quest this week to find the original photo from the Japan, the Japanese um, Kaguya, uh, Jaxa, Kaguya. And this is an area called the Oceanus Procellarum. And that's figure number eight. And I, well, whether it is or it isn't, he tripped my recollection with this facsimile. And I believe that this is the area that he was painting. Now, my, my theory is this. He painted this painting originally from memory of the terrain of the moon. And then he got the willies. I'm not supposed to do this, but I have to do this because it's the truth. So how can I get away with it? Oh, I'm going to paint Gene Cernan scampering across Taurus Littrow Valley over this painting. And it is hidden there in the subsurface. And so this was his way of telling us that he'd seen something extremely unusual and wonderful on the moon. And so if you go into Oceanus Procellarum, the west side, figure number eight, and enlarge that, you'll see the, what I call this highway. There's a huge crater there. There's a long string, horizontal string going, then makes a right angle. And in that area, it almost reminds me of the Great Wall of China, which has outposts on the way. And they, uh, the road, as I'll call it that, moves through these structures that are like nodes on this continuous highway. But if you go uh, directly across from the main crater and follow the highway, let's call it that, come to a node, you'll see that there's an area of excavation. So this is the area that I found in the original videotape that the Japanese were broadcasting and I had to freeze the frame. So if you now go to the next pictures, the blue pictures. Now, these blue pictures are shots that I shot of the screen since I couldn't capture the video uh, at the time. And it was a brief moment. I froze the frames and I shot two pictures and one of them closer than the other. And the trade-off when you do this of shooting off the screen is you lose a little bit of sharpness but you gain with uh, the rear illumination. Things that are really in the dark are illuminated from behind. And so you get this brilliant um, revelation of what's really there and under the surface. So if you go in there, you can enlarge it and see that central area, which I say looks to me like a mining area. And when you go deeply into it, if you work now with the original picture, which I found, and you can enhance that one, you find a lot of geometry. For example, picture number 10. If you go in there, you see that uh, it's like a gorge and a gigantic cave. And then you see the highway, as I call it, moving through what I would describe as perhaps a pillbox or a tunnel, and then continuing on. And as you just contemplate this picture for a while, you start to see the depths, the contours, the texture, the recesses. And I think that this is a fine example. Well, it's much better, obviously, if you look at the digital data from the Japanese that they posted. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can actually now work with the original and I can illuminate it. But uh, that was the revelation uh, from... Um, Alan Bean, 
So I think now we have to go back to his other photographs. I just found another one in the photograph that you compared with the dark side of the moon. I don't know if people realize that he was painting the dark side of the moon. You mean the far side? <clears throat> it's not dark. Yeah, the far side. Except every two weeks, sunrise and yeah. sunset. Okay. Yeah, but this one, I, I use that word because it is in the dark. But what's interesting, I think I spotted his illustration of the Mare Orientale in the center, and it's painted yellow. And there are other areas that are yellow indicating luminosity, perhaps, emanating from the far side of the moon in the dark. So I think I'm going to do this process on other paintings of his and see Robert, what, what we get. Okay. Yes, Andrew. Robert, I, don't, I want to cut in just for a second. I know people might be listening and going, and being very incredulous just to what you're suggesting that, oh, somehow he mapped it out below his painting. Well, yeah. if people, you know, after the show, um, go to YouTube and take a look at some of these, these people who, I guess they have autism, and they can go up in a plane over like a, a landscape, well, like a city, and just look at it and then come back down and draw it to exact precision this is a known thing and so it's not like out of the realm of possibilities what you're describing oh of course not especially if you're a pilot as a pilot i can tell you that you get up there you know five ten fifteen thousand feet you see the patterns of the earth and you learn to recognize them you learn to recognize uh, ribbons of highway not only in the daylight but at nighttime and it's, it's a total... Well, remember what, Sagan, remember what Sagan said in Cosmic Connection when he initiated NASA, which was very hard back in those days because NASA was incredibly resist, resistant to uh, even outside academics, and he was not really part of any team yet. Um, the first Tyro satellite had gone up, the first weather satellite, and he describes in a whole chapter in Cosmic Connection how he spent with a couple of grad students months going through thousands of black and white, very crude television images from Tyros looking for evidence of humans on Earth. And his criteria, <laughs> well, he did. He found two examples out of literally thousands of pictures at, the, at that very bad resolution. And those are at the beginning of the uh, video that we created for uh, President uh, uh, Trump and got to him through a back door. And then, of course, I wondered for years why he never used any of the information now that he has taken all these uh, documents down to Mar-a-Lago, which have probably even more amazing secrets in them. Anyway, so... Well, Richard, in consolation, in consolation, let me say, he got the message, and that's why he got Artemis maybe, to go... Maybe, through. maybe, 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 maybe. We, we don't... You know, again, this is so squishy, and I like things that we can nail down. So we'll hold that in abeyance. It may, Jesus Christ. It, 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 it may be that we influenced him. It may not be. I'm not going to claim anything I can't prove. The point is that Sagan then mm -hmm. coined the golden standard for looking for E.T. ruins on any other planet or evidence of ancient human habitation or intelligent life anywhere in the galaxy that mm -hmm. is above the level of a, of a microbe. And he said, life on Earth, meaning us, intelligence, humans, first manifests itself in the geometric regularity of its designs. So that's the secret sauce for finding E.T.'s 
anywhere in the universe, if you take a photograph of their planet or our planets or our moons and you find geometric regularity, you know that ET intelligence consciousness has somehow been there. Exactly. Let me finish off uh, this presentation. First, I'd like to ask Keith to insert the link to the website. There's a beautiful uh, website about the Temple of Philae, whose history is remarkable. It was actually moved uh, from its original site to protect it from the rising waters of the Aswan Dam, and it was stone by stone. It was uh, disassembled and rebuilt like the Abu symbol statues of Ramesses, rebuilt and repositioned. So um, it's not in the original site, but it is on a beautiful island that was uh, sculpted in landscape to be like the original beautiful island of Philae. And I think it's the same Philae as we say in philosophy and philosophy mm. and meaning love. Um, I would like to ask uh, Keith to insert the link below this picture of the temple at the opening. Someone wrote a wonderful article with tremendous photographs of the interior, and that's where you'll see the facsimiles to the uh, hieroglyphics that I say that uh, uh, Alan Bean uh, put in in the substrate of this painting. And so I hope to go on with more discoveries. Also, to finish off, in honor of uh, the coming winter solstice, which I consider my real Christmas, uh, honoring the ancient goddess Mut, the goddess of the moon. I always wondered why we say moon, luna. The ooh is such a prevalent sound in, in the uh, name of the moon. And it turns out it's the goddess of the moon is Mut, the Egyptian goddess. She was part of a trinity that was worshipped in Thebes. And it is her uh, cult. She was a, a creator goddess, gave birth through to the lunar child god, Khonsu. So I included her biography. And with the link to the Temple of Philae, you'll get the big picture. And basically, the message that I get from Alan Bean's painting is that there is Egyptian architecture and Egyptian hieroglyphics hidden under the surface of the moon. That's the subliminal message that I get from this oil painting. So um, that's about it, except to make one announcement. Yesterday I captured a UFO on video and it's really uh, unique and I hope to exhibit it. Thursday night, I'm going to have a solstice Christmas He has party. not sent it to any of the rest of us yet. <clears throat> no one has seen it except Andrew. Andrew was privy to it last night. And uh, he and I went over it frame by frame. And this thing is it's amazing. And I'm very happy Perhaps to have next it. week. Okay. Yeah, no, 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 no. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Well, obviously, we'll talk about it next week on next uh, Christmas Eve when we do the the whole Kennedy show. But, Andrew, yeah. if you've been the first eyewitness, like Alan Bean, what do you think of Robert's UFO video? Well, it's very unusual. Um, there's this dark streaking mass that just whips across the – he was basically filming uh, Riverside Park, right? Flags. Robert, see, the flags in flags. the wind. American flag and the MIO, MIA flag. Yeah, and then something goes by, and we're trying to figure out whether it went in front of the flagpoles, because you're how far are you away from the flagpoles? 
Oh, at that point, I'm about uh, 150 feet from the flagpole. Okay, so it either yeah, and so what Robert's going to do is take it into a, a movie um, edit pro, mm-hmm. yeah, movie edit, and then really break it down frame by frame because it is intriguing. Now he did say at the end of the when because it, it's moving left to right, he goes, "I do need to look at those frames towards the right side to see." Mm-hmm. Well, know, I got them today. It's, well, it's, you did. Oh, it's consistent. Yeah, it is really. Oh, and you know what? As I said yesterday, we it's accelerating uh, between. Let's say between the left border and the flagpole, it's going at one speed. Once it crosses the flagpole, it's going faster because it elongates. Because it's obviously, yeah. yeah. Because obviously, Robert and I were talking about: is it a bird? Is it a bug? Right? Like that. That's your first. <laughs> yeah, that's the first two. That's things your you first. Have. Yeah, exactly. So it's it, it, it it's unusual. But you know, um, well, wait, wait. If so- it goes behind the flagpoles, it can't be either. Right. That's the other point. It can't be either. And I don't see any change in the color of the uh, uh, of the flagpole. You should be able to do eyes of contours in the right imaging program and see, establish whether it's in front of or behind. And if it's behind, it's beyond 150 feet. The velocity mm-hmm. left to right, the angular mo- you know, velocity oh, of course, of course. would make it not a bird, not a plane and not Superman. Well, maybe Superman. But. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is this is very intriguing. It was very psychic. I hadn't shot video in about three months because uh, there was something wrong with the camera. I couldn't offload the pictures. I didn't have capacity. But I finally got a drive. I offloaded the pictures and I took the camera and I said to my friend, hey, this is the first time we're going to shoot video in a long time. Maybe today's the day we'll capture a UFO on video. Ha ha ha. Now this one, I was not conscious of having caught it. I was conscious that something passed the, the the lens because I got to the flagpole. They were straight, they were blowing out in the wind, straight out, beautiful shot. And so I took the camera, I looked down at it, I flipped the screen and opened it. I turned it on, and instantly, as soon as it came on, I saw something go across the screen, and then thought nothing of it and just shot the video. When I came home and saw it. And so ah, that so happens to so many people who take photographs or videos or whatever, and they don't see it at the, at the, at the time. And they look at it later and it's like, oh, my God, where did that come from? But the intriguing thing is that this is the ninth time I've had a UFO sighting at the monument, always at my Tai Chi class. And the last time it happened, June uh, 1st of 2019, it was at exactly the same time, a little a few minutes after four o'clock. Hmm. By so, the way, Keith tells me that your link is posted, so please check the other oh, side great. of the night. Oh, yeah. I t- folks, do yourself a favor and look at, see one of the most beautiful places, one of the most beautiful temples on planet Earth. And this person went there and did a wonderful job. You got interior photos, exterior photos, describes the boat ride, everything. Oh, cool. Yeah, there it is. There it is. Yeah. And then you look inside. Time travel turtle. Wow. And look and look at the uh, the interiors where you see the walls and the hieroglyphics, and then compare the, those walls and those reliefs with what you see in the surface uh, subsurface, I should say, of Alan Bean's paintings. And uh, I thank Alan Bean for those wonderful paintings and these insights. And uh, I hope he's happy 
where wherever he is. He may be in, actually inspiring us if my experiences with Robin. I know that sounds so crazy. Oh, I, I agree. And, is, and, and remember Jill told me the other night that she's mm-hmm. in contact with somebody too. So this yep. is, and I just saw a news flash today on some some network feed, and I didn't have time to read it. Somebody has now scientifically proven that what death can be reversed. And I have no idea what that entails, but it sounds like we're getting into very important territory. Yes. Anyway, uh, we are literally now at the uh, bottom of the hour. So I think this is very appropriate given the theme, not only of the evening and who could have been on the moon before us, but in honor of Robert's most recent experience in Riverside Park. This is Karen Carpenter, one of my favorite songs because it's the kind of theme, I believe, for 2023. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft And welcome back everyone on this Saturday night To be rebroadcast, I can say that I think If uh, I warm up a bit here On Christmas Eve, Sunday night, Christmas Day uh, Christmas night, actually, technically. Uh, this uh, just seems so appropriate because our next uh, guest is going to be John Womack, who's done yeoman service with this astonishing Eclipse video that NASA released from its uh, heavily modified GoPro cameras on which there is astonishing stuff uh, that we're going to go through very shortly. But I want John to do a kind of a setup. This, just for the heck of it, you know, let's listen for a couple of seconds here, Pink Floyd and the Dark Side of the Moon. There is something so haunting about that album. And you know what they chose uh, as the cover, which I find incredibly, again, prescient. And so much of this, you know, guys, is... Is this conscious or is this some bleed through from some higher level of our consciousness that really, really bespeaks to something that we know deep down? But we don't know that we know, so it streams through our unconscious and we either do it because it feels right, like that being painting, or we do it because we're communicating some higher level message because the message from Pink Floyd and Dark Side of the Moon was a prism showing the 
break out of the color of the glass that we now covers the whole misnomer of the dark side of the moon. So, Jonathan, you're on. Tell us what you did with that video and what you've been thinking about what we're all seeing uh, in the days after you first posted it. I'd rather talk about what you just oh, said, okay. Richard. All right. Yeah, um, you made a very good point, and that's what I, I wanted to center my discussion on tonight was the metaphysical aspect of the moon and the earth and what the astronauts that go to the moon are experiencing. You said that, uh, you mentioned how Carl Sagan uh, set set the rule book for um, acknowledging. Yeah, kind of like the gold standard of how I look at this stuff. Yes, but in the higher vibrational realms where, in my experience, you know, most of the galaxy lives, these higher beings that have advanced beyond our level of technology and existence, they look for thought. They, they find civilizations by detecting thought patterns, and it can be at any distance. You know, thought is a non-local phenomenon, remote viewing and so forth. You can see across the street or remote view across the galaxy in the same manner. And it's the same thing in the spirit realms where these beings look for thought patterns and then they go and and then they'll usually find these geometric patterns on the planet because indeed there are people there thinking. And part of the engineering of our solar system uh, is to help species reach a level of telepathy so that we we can communicate with them someday in the movie 2001 arthur c Clarke, and we go to the moon they find this uh, monolith and when i saw that you know i think of the astronauts going to the moon like alan bean and uh, buzz aldrin and First of all, the moon is unique in the way that it revolves around the Earth, and uh, its placement should tell everyone that it, it's not a natural. So it was put there in a very exact spot for a very precise reason by these very intelligent folks. And when we make it to the moon, something is happening whether it's the moon's uh, Schumann resonance that's facilitating this change. I don't know. Maybe the the smart glass uh, has something to do with it. But there is a field of energy that is affecting these astronauts. It's, It's metaphysical. It's a vibrational thing that is affecting them on a very deep level. Some of them come away not as affected. Well, John, let me interrupt because it just, from our measurements, it just could be that the moon is like at the apex of the HD connection in the Earth-Moon system because of where it is, how it orbits the Earth. It has enormous angular momentum. It is processing slightly, and those are the conditions in engineering terms for opening a gate between dimensions 
So if you're landing on the moon, you're landing in the middle of an environment that's more conducive to a higher level hyperdimensional connection, at least from my research. I, I could not agree more. And I mentioned last week that um, Ingo Swan wrote in his book that when he remote viewed the moon, one of the things he saw was um, he was seeing through a film of a dimensional film and looking at some people that looked very much like us, but were slightly different. And they were uh, working on the moon and and one of them looked directly at Ingo and pointed at him and they could, they could see him. So it's, it's affecting when you're physically, Ingo was just remote viewing the moon. He's there with his mind. Uh, but when you're there physically, that is also happening. You are um, near that film of interdimensionality and uh, they must feel it too. There's got to be, when you're standing there physically on the moon, there has to be, I, I would imagine they would all admit to this, that they feel different than they, in their, um, their soul. I don't know how else to say it, but um, yeah, they, they become very spiritual and, you know, they have these spiritual uh, experiences that, that stay with them the rest of their lives and they're very affected by it. So that's how I see the moon. It's a metaphysical object um, that has hyperdimensional well, it's aspects both. It's to both it. Like a physical, <laughs> it's a physical place where incredible civilizations played out their lives and their soap operas in this dimension. And it's also a gateway because physically of how, in other words, the moon, earth moon system, I believe, in my model was part of what I call the designer solar system, where everything was supposed to have a role in connecting us between dimensions and providing us with examples of how to live. And then something so the horrible happened. dimensional happens. transducer. Yeah, okay, that, uh, I'll buy that, okay. So continue, John, sorry. Yeah, and Moreover, the other planets are also part of this technology uh, that you just laid out, Richard, with uh, the, the moon being on the, the edge of this um, construct and it's opening dimensional doors. And so this this is a gateway. And I've you know I'm I'm neck deep in Arches Park decoding the portals. Um, so there, there is a similarity between what's going on on the moon and these portals. Um, I actually have a – when I come back for part two of the Arches Park uh, presentation, I'm going to have some astounding insights. And I, I've constructed a 3D model of delicate arch and added the, the, nose co the noise cones or, or these – Amphitheaters, as you call them, Richard, um, what they're doing to the these stone foundations where the arches are built well, if, upon. Well, if, if part of the triggering of the gateway between dimensions is resonance sound, Maria and I have talked about this at Stonehenge, and when Robin and I and Michael went out to uh, Chaco Canyon, uh, I was doing some measurements, and they went off separately, and they started yodeling. 
and doing resonance echoing in some of these natural amphitheaters that the Anasazi kind of rearranged and the sounds and what it did to just your, the how, feeling of being there. I mean, resonant frequencies change the vibration of our connection to higher state spaces. And just listen to a Gregorian chant and you'll know what I mean. Music has, you know, whatever to soothe the savage breast was not an overstatement by Shakespeare. Yeah, you have cymatics and you had Dr. Don Robbins years ago did a study at the Rollwright Ring in the UK and he um, used a device to measure, he discovered that there was ultrasound being produced uh, at the two equinoxes at this ring and we don't hear this if, the, if he had a dog with him, you know, the dog might be like, woo, woo, woo. but it's generating ultrasound and probably very low frequency sounds that we also don't consciously hear, but that they have an effect on us. Mm, definitely. Okay. Um, I, I'd like you to say something about the video because I want to go to the stills next to provide foundation for the rest of our conversation because these comparisons with Bean's paintings with contemporary imagery now from NASA, no matter how they're trying to cover it up. Um, like, why don't we talk about the weirdness that you and I talked about when you did the uh, the transfer? Yeah, the weirdness is that the, the moon uh, and the Earth, they bulge um, with a regular frequency. They get larger and smaller, larger. And the NASA explanation on Twitter, because someone asked NASA, say, why is it bulging Many like times, that? many times. Yeah. Many times, and the answer um, is somewhat vague. I think what they're saying is that the camera is trying to autofocus as the moon is the moon and the earth. I'm is sorry, in that is crap. And the reason is I sent you the original unedited version of the video from from NASA, from the official press conference that one of the high-level messengers again leaking. These people are doing it like Dickinson. They don't say it in words, but in the middle of something totally unrelated, he pops up this two, three-minute video showing the raw footage of the eclipse from the beginning to the middle to the end. It took 90 minutes, and in that time, the spacecraft is moving slightly in terms of attitude, so the Earth-Moon combo moves around the frame a bit, and you can see the shadowing changing. There isn't a quiver. There isn't a jellyfish effect at all on the original footage that footage was then taken by a, J, uh, a johnson space center engineer and transferred to a linear program which does what's called uh, uh motion uh capture so that you stabilize the image so it's not moving all over the frame and then because on the raw data nothing else is doing anything in the raw data frames. They're not quivering, they're not expanding or contracting like a balloon getting bigger, smaller, bigger, smaller. They're absolutely rock solid except they're moving around the frame because the spacecraft and the camera's moving and of course everything in the in the in the spacecraft frame is 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 stationary and it's only the moon earth combo out there, you know, thousands of miles away that's moving because the attitude of the of the spacecraft the camera platform is actually shifting. So when you can put all that together, it's obvious to me, and that's why I sent you all this footage, 
that what NASA did when they made it available to the media, they did the transfer, they introduced the ballooning effect. They made it get bigger and smaller and bigger and smaller. And it's so damn distracting by design that you don't notice unless you're looking for the color changes as the eclipse is, 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 you know, uh, being going from first to second to third to fourth contact and the earth is moving behind the moon. And that's where we have to go through the stills because when you freeze frame it and look at it in detail, that's where the real payoff is. And NASA is being very elegant in introducing something totally spurious, totally nonsensical, totally not real engineering, simply to distract the audience from what they really should be focusing on. And it seems to work because the guy that asked the question of NASA and he gets the reply and he says, oh, thanks for explaining that. Oh, I learn something new every day. Mission, yeah, right. Like NASA knows how to introduce noise into videos. Big X-Bing deal. Okay. So with that, let's go back. We've got about 40, about 15 minutes here. Let's go back to my section of radio with pictures. You want to go to item number seven. These are now stills that I extracted from the uh, video that John modified. And all he did was to simply add the color back in that NASA had subtracted. Because we're all told, you remember Apollo and God knows how many, you know, 50 years, that the moon is gray. Oh, the moon is gray. moon is gray. No, the moon is not gray. As the live video from the GoPro cameras on uh, Orion showed us, that morning when they whipped around the moon before they entered the distant retrograde orbit. So if you look at seven, there are two stages in the eclipse. One is early, one is later. Uh, you read from right to left. Uh, that's the real color of the, of the moon. How do I know? Because what you do is you decrease the brightness of the image that you've captured you then use the little eyedropper mechanism or whatever tool in the program you're working with, which gives you the light levels in the red, green, and blue channels. Remember, white light is a combination of red, green, and blue. So you balance those out so they're all equal. Then you brighten it back up so that you get the more subtle colors of whatever is in the frame, now white balanced, and bingo, there, the far side, because you're looking now at the glass on the far side of the moon, looking past the moon, which is about 50,000 miles from the Orion spacecraft, to the Earth, which is about 270,000 miles away from the spacecraft. And the orbit was arranged, again, not by accident or chance, at the level of billions to one. They wanted this to happen because they were measuring various aspects of what happens when you cross behind the moon as seen from Earth, both optically in looking at the glass and also in the physics, which is what they're never going to tell us unless somebody after the NDAA is signed simply goes and reports to the proper committees and the proper members of the fourth estate what it is that NASA has been hiding about measuring the hyperdimensional physics of an Earth moon eclipse alignment, which, of course, they're doing. All right, number eight. This is now an enlargement of the Earth going more and more behind 
the far side of the moon. The colors, again, I described the color balancing. They're real. They're pastel. They're stunning. They're what you see in glass. No, they're not geological. Like on the front side of the moon, there's color, but it's basically the surface. It's the composition of the soil, of the materials, whatever. On the far side, the glass is so much thicker. It's so much better preserved that they're real colors caused by spectral refraction and interference in the layers of the total moon covering glass dome. And I know there are people, when I say that, they freak out like, oh, my God, he's crazy. There's no way. You're dealing with aliens, folks. You're dealing with a super ancient civilization. Did you expect they'd be building Kmarts? No. It's back to Arthur Clarke. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, and this applies specifically to extraterrestrial technology, either by real aliens or our great, 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 great distant ancestors, as I've been saying for the last uh, 20 or 30 years. So we're now seeing this in evidence. There's an incredible glass shell with multiple layers and multiple geometry, and we finally got some close-ups of the geometry I'm going to show you very shortly. It's going to blow your minds, but it's real, it's verifiable, and it's on the original Apollo imagery processed not by me, but by all kinds of NASA aficionados who think of themselves as kind of like surrogate citizen scientists who are working for NASA, but not really. So that brings us to number nine. Number nine is really important. Why is it important? Because look at how the Earth is now disappearing behind the dark side, literally the night side of the moon, with the sun coming in from the left and the night side of the moon on the right. And as the Earth is disappearing, it's not blue. It's various colors. Why is it various colors? If I take a knife edge in space, in a vacuum, and I bring it across a distant object, that edge will not impart any color to the distant object. It can't. There's no way it can. So the only way that there could be color of an Earth sunset, the Earth's setting behind the night side of the moon, is if something was refracting differentially, like a prism, the colors, the white light of the Earth, of the clouds, and breaking it into spectral components so you see reds and violets and greens and blues like a rainbow. And that brings you down to number 10. Because Apollo 12, of all of the amazing Apollo missions, had the most extraordinary uh, experience you can imagine if you're an astronaut. They literally, because of the trajectory, they fell through on the way home to Earth. They fell through the shadow of the Earth, extending away from the sun. They experienced a total solar eclipse caused by the Earth. And Alan Bean was so struck, either consciously or unconsciously, by what this looked like, that he created a painting. Literally, it's in his gallery. And he's in the night side shadow, and you're looking at the clouds that are illuminated by full moonlight. 
because by this time it was almost a full moon behind the Apollo 12 spacecraft as it was falling toward the Earth. I think they were about a day out from the Earth before they entered the atmosphere and splashed down in the Pacific. And then all around the edge of the Earth, that incredible multicolored ring is the Earth's atmosphere acting like a gigantic 8,000-mile-wide annular lens refracting differentially, simultaneously, all the sunsets and all the sunrises at the edge of the Earth that are undergoing that light transition at the moment when they, the astronauts, were falling through the Earth's shadow. And Bean immortalized it in this amazing painting. And then all you have to do is compare it to the Orion imagery taken during the Earth eclipse behind the moon, behind the far side of the moon. And you can see that there is the Earth is disappearing, this similar incredible prismatic color refraction, breaking the light's wavelengths into separate beams that are moving at, at separate frequencies, you see the same thing. And the only physical way that can be happening, given that the moon has no air, it has no atmosphere, it's like one ten trillionth of the Earth's atmosphere, it optically does nothing. The only way you can be seeing this and being could have remembered it or seen it in photographs from which he drew his paintings would be if there is a glass set of shells covering the moon and that geometry allows you to see the earth setting behind the glass lens of the lunar shell, the lunar dome, and you're seeing differential prismatic refraction of the glass dome on the moon which now takes us to item number 11. Because the Apollo 17 crew photographed the Earth setting behind the dark lunar hemisphere from much closer to the moon. So the moon's uh, horizon is going to be almost straight, very little curvature. And you can see the crescent Earth setting behind uh, the uh, sunset side of the moon. And then you see two arrows showing that in the same field of view, there are incredible physical prisms being created by chunks of glass big enough to refract enough energy to the cameras on the Apollo 12 command module so that they were able to record on very slow 64 ASA film the Earth setting behind the darkened limb of the moon and the momentary geometric alignment. So the glass chunks that were embedded in this framework of invisible structure holding up the glass caught the sun and the earth reflected just at the right angle. And you see two examples of prisms from the glass covering the moon. You assemble this evidence again and again and again. And it's just impossible to believe that any of this is simply by chance, which takes us to number 12. Another example, the far side of the moon struck me as the kind of refractive prismatic effect you get if you look at a very carefully cut, multifaceted, very expensive diamond. 
Doesn't matter what the refractive index is, glass or diamond or something in between. Refraction is refraction is refraction. And so look at those wonderful pastel colors in the enlarged diamond. I'm not sure what the carat size is. I could look it up, but it doesn't matter. Because look at the background image from Orion of the far side of the moon, and you see the same pastel refractions which are visible in a place where they have no business being on the far side of the moon. Okay, and we are back. Um, let's go back to the images very quickly because uh, uh, let me do this. Okay, first, thank you. Because uh, what you're going to want to do now is look at 13. This was the break. Andrew, uh, uh, kind of come back here and, and help me with this. This was the painting where in his write-up, Bean talks verbally in, in writing about how he did this painting of himself on the moon, and it didn't look right, and it didn't feel right, and it didn't sit right, and he, he, he had this long period of time where he was just very uncomfortable about it, and then he had like an epiphany, and then he redid the painting. He literally talks about redoing the painting so that it reflected how he felt walking on the moon. I would say this is kind of like a smoking gun. Yeah, I do remember this, Richard. You, you know another thing that you brought to mind with your diamond comparison? Um, I don't mean to – I'm not trying to jump across from your question and what Robert presented in terms of this strange uh, texturing of his background, and we see it here so clearly. It kind of struck me that if we are indeed looking at you know, ancient glass domes. I mean, obviously, you, you, sit, you know, they're very eroded down to almost a nothingness now. But well, not on the far side. On the near side, yes. Otherwise, the astronauts would have died trying to land through it. That's why the Indian mission, which tried to land at the South Pole, crashed because it didn't do what right. the Chinese knew how to do on the far side. You can't go horizontal. You have to land vertically. And you have to have radar so you avoid the glass that's remaining. I mean, it's, it's, it's eaten to smithereens, except there's much more of it on the far side than the near side, which is why it shows up on even as dumb, something as dumb and stupid as a GoPro camera. Yeah. Well, uh, Rich, I have a question. Yeah, sure. Is there any slim chance that maybe the moon has a really thin atmosphere made up of unusual gases? Nope. Nope, and I'll tell you how we know. There is a, there's a brilliant book written by a British astronomer in the 1950s. His name was Fearsoft, F-I-R-S-O-F-F. -F. You can Google him. And he specifically cites uh, professionals and amateurs looking at stars going behind the moon, what's called an occultation. And he reasons in this chapter devoted to this phenomenon that if the moon had an atmosphere, remember this is back in the 1950s, long before spacecraft and Apollo and you know anything but remote observations by telescopes, 
that the stars going behind the moon, if the atmosphere existed, would like stars rising and setting on the earth, they would twinkle. There'd be differential thermal convective heat waves, like looking at the you know landscape in a desert at high noon under sunlight, and the stars would shimmer before they winked out behind the solid limb of the moon. And he collected, I forget how many observations from all over the world, going back 100 years or so, nobody ever observed, and they haven't since, stars twinkling or flickering when they go behind the moon. So there's no atmosphere that would optically affect light the way we see it. And the very core of your question tells me you are still doubting the presence of a dome around the moon. I have to ask the question. Um, I mean, I've seen videos of what looks like a wave going around the circumference of the moon. I don't know where it came from. Oh, you mean that guy that I, I call that guy up. I know the guy you mean. That's physically in the dome itself. It has nothing to do with an atmosphere. It's a property of the, as John said a moment ago, the smart dome, because I'm coming to believe that this stuff is still somehow alive. It's still connected to some engineering or hyperdimensional technology or whatever. And this guy caught it on videos, and he has produced the most astonishing religious interpretation. I was going to have him on as a guest. And he is a absolute stark raving guy when it comes to religion. And this is not religion. This is engineering. So I have made the temporary decision not to put him on the show. Uh, that may change if enough people you know, send me emails and say, oh, by all means, have him on. I'll have him on. But I just want to warn you that his interpretation was so far out of what the rest of the data says about potential smart architecture which has this incredible wave-like property when you look at it at certain times in his videos. And I know that he hasn't faked the videos because it's consistent with other stuff that I've observed in the data. And there's no way that this guy, unless he's a NASA plant, would be spreading disinformation. No, it's a real wave phenomenon, but it's part of the dome, not a gaseous atmosphere. Hey, Richard, Richard, we add that, that uh, link to the, Hi, John. the show page? Yes. That would be cool to see. I've never seen that. What, that particular video? Yeah. Okay, I'll have to go find it, and we'll post it in my section, okay, is item number 20. You know. Richard, I, I, I want to answer your question about 13, because I really think <laughs> uh, Robert has stumbled on something. You mean, you, you mean, Maybe, you mean my number item 13? Your item 13 and this whole, you know, I know about how Bean said it just didn't feel right. You know, his texturing, this sort of, uh, you know, because he uses a, what's called a gesso or gesso, I yep. don't know how you pronounce it. Yep. Yep. And he, yeah, and he would sort of really scumble it into the background. And when we look at 13 in this painting oh. that you're talking about, you know, we expect the moon and even his astronaut outfit to be, you know, rough. You know, it's a, the material of his, of his. You know, there's a lots of tubes and things. It's and, a and, very and coarse fabric because it's very thick to hold the air in and keep him alive. Sure, sure. And then we look at the, you know, the, the moon landscape and any of our traditional 
shots of the moon, whether it be um, the Japanese, the Chinese, any, anybody, Chinese, NASA. And it's like, yeah, yeah, we'd expect a roughness in, in the regolith as well. But the thing that strikes me, and it has a lot, is he's really, really wanting to emphasize it in the moon sky, in the sky. Exactly. Bingo. But, ding, uh, ding, 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 as Art would say. Right. But Richard, here's the thing. You know, we've been kind of going over this, and I, and I, I know this is 100% speculation. I get it, but with uh, some very intriguing evidence. But, but Robert has brought up something really interesting, and this is a crazy thought. But what if that – if there was glass, still is, and what if what he was looking at were pictograms, were narratives etched into the glass everywhere in this intricate diamond-like way? And I say that because years and years and years ago, I had someone – I used to coach a swim team, and one of the dads, he was a dentist, and he said, you're an artist, right? And I said, yeah, and he said, well, we're building a new house, and I want to have these, these, these sort of etched glass, this sort of glass, you know, like it's like you smoke out the glass or however the process is and have it as a centerpiece in front of the house. And he had me sort of design slash draw it up so that he could get it done. And the effect of it is so beautiful. I used to drive by his house on the way to work, and I'd see it. And this was just lit from within. But if you could imagine, you know, our, our, you know, our history written into this. And again, I know, folks, I'm, I'm really jumping out there. But, <laughs> Bean's, yes. but, but Bean's emphasis on wanting to bring out this, this sky, it, to me, just says, hmm. And then with Robert going, yeah, there could be something in there. It just makes me think we might be looking at even more extraordinary things about this glass. And if it's a glass that – what did you say? A living glass, Richard, that we could program? Smart it's glass. You guys are driving glass. me crazy. I got <laughs> I want to – But anyways, it's, it's a thought. It, it just, it's interesting. Okay. I have, I have, uh, oh. I have three more I got to get to, and then we're going to oh, bring – Oh, God. What do you mean, oh, God? No, God is not running the show. I am. So yeah. uh, item number 14. <laughs> Item number 14. Okay. Click on 14. Yeah. This is the 13, NASA normal view of the Taurus Littrow Valley of the moon where Apollo 17 landed. Click on it. I, I sized it so it should be just about the size of the whole frame. You scroll left and right. Okay, there's the logo of Apollo 17. Move it left and right. You can see detail. You can see shadows. You can see... In the upper left-hand corner or right corner, it's color, but it's so washed out. You'd never. It looks like the moon they've been giving us, you know, the crap they've been giving us, to use my French, uh, for 50 years. Then you go to 15. Look at that. That's what's in the archive now. That's the real color of the moon. And it looks eerily like Alan Bean's damn paintings. And then if you look at that big blobby thing on the left, the upper left, all right, get out of this. Now you want to click on – no. oh, wait a minute. What happened to – oh, number 17. Oh, well, go to 16, okay? Because this, of course, is the background of Gene Cernan at Taurus Litro. And if you look and you compare you know, 16 and 15, this is what he's painting. So for those of you who think that he was leaked a real photo – uh, it's possible. Remember, he was on the moon. He knows what he saw, if he could remember it, if the drugs didn't drive it out of his consciousness. So I don't know whether it, it even means anything because he's a first-person witness. He was there. 
and 16 shows that in talking to Cernan, Cernan told him what it looked like, which takes us to 17. Kind of ironic. This now, scroll left and right. Andrew, there is your sky castles and glass geometry, the glittering glass geometry when you're looking directly at the sun where the geometry is backlit by sunlight and it shows geometric streaking, it shows spars, it shows individual uh, cupolas and spheres and a color, a color shift caused by the chromatic refraction in the glass that is identical to what you see in the diamond, in the glass shells, in, in, in all kinds of other examples. Now, number 18, uh, click on 18. This is a comparison of, again, Bean's painting of Cernan at Taurus Litro. The image on the right is the actual photograph of the orange soil from Taurus Litro with the color gnomon there in the foreground. In the background is the landscape of the moon, and above that, a few glittering glass fragments that are visible because of the way I brought up the uh, luminosity. This is what the moon looked like really to the astronauts, regardless of the chemistry of the upwelling of regolith caused by the bubbling up, uh, you know, half a billion years ago of an under deep under under uh, lunar ground volcano. And finally, this comes to one of my favorite shots, Andrew. This is a comparison of Harrison Schmidt, again, at Taurus Litro under glass. On the right side is the Madrid Crystal Palace, showing what happens when you create a structure totally made of panes of glass, all the different colors that you get, both in the air, in the glass, on the floor, while you're walking, in the panels overhead. And there on the left is the image of Bean, uh, I'm sorry, of Schmidt, taken just taken off the NASA website and color enhanced, just the color has been resaturated. And you see not only the horizontal layering of the sunrise reflections from sunrise uh, be, you know, behind your, your view, projected on the dark side of the, of the night side of the moon as the, as the sun is, is rising behind you, you also see a little additional tiny prism focused on the camera because of the right angle in the glass. You see the color of the astronaut spacesuits. You see the blues. You see the golds. You see the mauves. And you see basically what the moon really looked like to all of the Apollo crews, but it was only Alan Bean that was able to commit it to a recordable form and get away with so-called artistic license in telling the truth about the moon. Ron? Ah, yeah, I, I, this is not anti-dome, so I don't know why you're uh, holding me off. The, uh, there's something else that's a factor that applies to all of this. The moon itself is a hyperdimensional object. And I don't mean that in a really general sense. It's different. I think that those that want to keep things secret are much less worried 
about human beings landing and walking around on the surface of Mars than they are about the moon. The moon is different since it was parked there. It's something else. It's a hyper, it is virtually a, an enormous hyperdimensional gateway all by itself. It's why it draws our attention. That's what John and I said half an hour ago. Were you listening? The moon uh, itself. Every word, I didn't have it come out the, that way. It's because I, because, I, because I don't speak like you and you don't speak like me. I've said yeah, the okay. moon was added to increase the amplification of the HD connection the thing. to, let me finish, to hmm. the Earth in terms of its angular momentum. You could have added a chunk of basalt, which is what they think the moon is, and it would still have the same hyperdimensional effect. The moon right. as a mass is doing the HD thing to the Earth-Moon system, regardless of what it's made of. Right, right. But the uh, one of the things that I noticed a long time ago was, uh, actually, I can date it very nicely because it was when I read that infamous book by George Leonard, uh, Someone Else is on the Moon. And I realized something was going on. It gave me the idea of the stationary hologram doesn't require power, doesn't require anything else. They were so mastered, they had so mastered the art of optics and so forth that uh, they were able to do that. And some of those still survive. And some of the things you're talking about hanging in the sky, those are holographic. Maybe and maybe not. It's a, it's a great, not all of them. It's, it's a not great, all it's of a, them. It's a, Ron, 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 the whole point is to check things and verify you're looking at real stuff, not just speculation. Right. This is at, well. What everything you said is speculation too, because we haven't physically touched it. Now, you don't I have to physically touch it. If you get enough pictures mm. from enough different angles, and the same thing is there, and it changed like a hologram three dimensionally, you wouldn't have to physically touch it. You can't okay, touch now most holograms. That's right on point. Let me finish. Uh, the thing is, no, you don't have to touch it. But B, you can't really see it in a single photograph. It's something that you will see glimpses of or references of in if you look at enough photos of the same place, speaking in this case of the moon. And one of the things that uh, George Leonard did talk about seeing strange uh, reflective and refractive things on the surface, he couldn't define them. One of them is in the crater Plato and it's uh, at about, if you look, just stare down at it because it's nice and round, uh, it's at about 5 o'clock, okay, uh, around the rim there. And it's a, an impossibly tall statue of an Indian. It looks kind of like an Inca. And it took years of study to figure out that that's what it had to be. So I could still be wrong. Well, but that's what you there, think it's it one of those that's, that's stationary you, holograms. That's what you think it looks like, and it could be a hologram, not a physical object. And this is all totally, totally, you know, bona fide speculation or theory. And we have the prospect now of getting real data. You know how we're going to get real data, which is my entrance to Barbara, because Barbara's on tonight to talk about the politics of taking this theory and making it manifest in the place where all of this has to ultimately come to fruition or society will never benefit, which is in the critical process in Washington. Barbara, what are you mm. thinking about what we've been uh, looking at? And, and I might as well go to bed. Good night, Ron.
<laughs> okay, can you hear it can me? be that way. I am leaving. Okay. Hi, Barbara. Bye, bye. Good night, Barbara. Okay. Yeah, can you yeah. hear me, Richard? Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Can you hear me? Yes, bye-bye means it's, oh, a, okay. it's an old phrase. It means hear you loud and clear. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, I'd like to make uh, a few comments, and I think they're valuable to um, what has been said before, and then then we'll get to your politics uh, issue. Um, in response to Robert Morningstar's presentation, which I loved, um, I have been to the island of Philae, to the Temple ah. of Philae, and um, this was my trip in uh, 2017 to Egypt. I'm going to go again uh, late February into March of next year, and there was something about, even though the temple was moved because of the Aswan Dam and all of that, um, it's still the temple, and it's there's something about that temple that was not just my favorite, but there was something highly spiritual about it compared to the others. And if you just look at it, if you when you're there especially, but even looking at the photos of it and comparing it with the photos of, for instance, the Luxor Temple, Karnak, there's something about the temple and the island of Philae that is more human scale um, it's bringing and it's also the island of Isis so it's the feminine side of the Godhead of the Trinity and it was the most beautiful of all of the temples as well um, so I just wanted to say I've been there and anyone who hasn't gone to Egypt or has gone to Egypt and never went to the temple of Philae where it's been moved, um, you absolutely have to do that. Uh, and you, you reach it by boat, of course. It's an island. Um, it's just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, okay, the next thing I wanted to mention is that I met Eugene Cernan. Ah. And my, my first question, I've met a number of astronauts, um, but um, my first question is, was Alan, for, for those especially who might be new to this show, and just to remind me, is it the case that Alan Bean was physically on the moon? Yes, yes. He was the lunar module pilot on Apollo 12, which was the second man landing on the moon after Apollo 11 in November of 1969. So he was physically on the surface? Yes, yes. Okay. All right. That's very, very important. And so he, he experienced um, what you show in your number 10. Exactly. That's my whole point. Yeah. yeah. His, the, your, your, your number 10 to me is the most incredible of all of the images that you, the comparison images that you've given. Um, I would like to also add, um, I don't know if I mentioned this before, I think I did on a previous show. Um, I not only held the NASA portfolio in the Reagan White House um, for the first two and a half years, something like that, uh, in his first term, <laughs> starting on January 20th, 1981, um, but um, I went to Stanford University undergraduate and graduate, and I am both a member and on the advisory committee of, of an organization, believe it or not, it exists, called Stanford on the Moon. Ah. 
And uh, on the advisory committee with me is none other than Buzz Aldrin. All of this is very, very important to me personally, uh, especially because, as I mentioned on a previous show, but for those who might be new to this show, um, when I I was double-headed with uh, between the Reagan White House and the Reagan Justice Department Civil Rights Division, where I headed the uh, Attorney General's Gender Equity Task Force, and one of my jobs probably the most important job, was to meet with, um, at the deputy level approximately, of the 46 departments and agencies of the federal government, which of course included NASA. And our job was to get all of those departments and agencies to open up uh, all of their programs to women. And one of the most important things that we did was to open up the U.S. Astronaut Corps to women. So that's what Artemis is about, of course, the first woman on the moon who will be a U.S. astronaut. So I think it's also a very delicate code for ISIS going back to Robert's stunning discovery of Egyptian hieroglyphs in Bean's paintings. Because I think, Robert, you're absolutely accurate. You've figured out another level of the code, and it's not unconscious. It's part of the whole insurgency of the astronaut corps to finding out they'd been throttled and censored from telling anybody what they really saw. Thank you, Richard, and thank you, Barbara, for your kind words. I have to say that with regard to Philae, the moment I saw the photographs of it, it was love at first sight. It's very important to me because my my studies of Egyptology came when I discovered that the twenty, the first twenty hieroglyphs in E. Wallace Budge dictionary. Uh, for hieroglyphs relating to men correspond to movements of Tai Chi Chuan. So that began my studies and I had a instantaneous uh, realization that those two traditions are connected and the, the information has been transferred through time, through millennia, by the hieroglyphics of the form. So the Tai Chi form in hieroglyphics says something. But that's a well, that's story for cool. another time. But and Can um, you imagine doing Tai Chi on the moon's gravity? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Uh, well, actually, uh, the the Chinese history, and not legend, the history of China says that the Tang Emperor, Xuanzong, claimed to have gone to the moon with the moon people who landed on his palace in Xi'an oh. around 725 A.D., and invited him to go to the Chinese heaven or Peng Lai Shan or fairyland, which was on the moon. He claimed to have gone to the moon and been entertained by the moon people with beautiful dances of fairies in iridescent, resplendent, iridescent garments, dancing to celestial music. When he came back, he taught his wife those movements. He said, you must learn these before I forget them. And he wrote down music and it's a long history that led to revolution etc but uh, that's the real history of Tai Chi Chuan but it's intimately connected with uh, Philae and Egypt in that the name of the founder of Tai Chi Chuan is John Sun Feng and that is actually a pun Zhang is a measure in Chinese for flat quadrangular areas and San Feng means three humps and for years, I pondered 
Because how could the the founder of Tai Chi Chuan become the 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 flat plane with three humps? And suddenly I realized that it was referring to Giza, the giant Giza, and that it's a code. It's a Chinese uh, code for the origin of this and the connection, lunar connection, celestial connection, mystical connection, and joining these two uh, traditions, uh, even down to metaphysics. In the, the Egyptians call the soul the Ka and the Ba, and the Chinese call, the Taoists call the soul the Gui and the Bo. And uh, they mean very interesting things. But I think that I really picked up Alan Bean's message. All of us working together have deciphered this. And it's part of something that I call geometric ciphers or geometric encoding. And you have to break the code geometrically. It's not a... I'll tell you what, Robert, we're at the bottom of the hour. Yeah. We will resume this, and we'll get to, which I want to get to after we've laid the foundation, how do we make all this real? Without the right politics, nothing is going to change in the most important discovery, literally in the history of mankind. Proof that we are not alone, and somehow we humans like Neil Armstrong said, are part of a larger mankind. back everyone to this last half hour if you're listening on Christmas night we've been describing the most incredible Christmas present for the world one can imagine reconnecting the human species with who we really are so um, Barbara let me go to you because George is waiting in the wings and she has some very interesting things that she wants to contribute in the in the way of the art commentary, but I want you to say a couple words about how politically we transfer this from just a bunch of friends and colleagues, you know, talking to each other about amazing stuff. How do we get it solidified in the real, practical, political world of U.S. politics and policy making? Right. Well, uh, you and I talked uh, offline <laughs> uh, before the show. Um, because I I realized um, that there was a way to amplify what I've already said on a previous show about how to go about this. And that is, and what I'm about to say applies to any important message that you want to get out officially, to officialize it and get it out to millions of people. Not just this subject, but any subject, any topic. So as you can imagine, um, I could apply this, for instance, to 9-11 truth. Um, but for lunar truth, if you will, um, at, which is what we're talking about, um, in previous shows I've mentioned that what what is needed in this particular way to go about it, which is where I'm focusing tonight, um, what you need is at least one courageous member of Congress, of the House or the Senate, a sitting member of Congress, because it only takes a single member of Congress 
to spill the beans of whatever it is on the floor of the House or the Senate or in any House or Senate committee room or in any official capacity as a member of Congress. And when they do, under the Supreme Court decision of Gravel versus U.S. versus the United States, there is nothing that any individual in including the president of the United States and the executive branch or in the court system itself can do to that member of Congress for telling the truth on the floor of the house of the Senate or in a committee room, committee hearing. Um, there's nothing that can be done to them under the speech or debate clause of the constitution. This is a binding Supreme court decision. Now what I realized and told you about on a phone call a few days ago that I wanted to add to that. If you can get to, and then we have to discuss who, who are the best candidates. You have to find the very best candidate, just one, and get to that individual uh, to begin with. Nobody else. Um, but once you have a courageous member of Congress who spills the beans of whatever it is on the floor of the House or the Senate or in any hearing room, uh, House or Senate committee hearing, then every single word that they say goes into the congressional record. It is printed daily by the government printing office. And there is a federal statute that states that the franking privilege of and I believe this is in the Constitution, the franking privilege. Yes. But it there is. it's the franking the franking privilege of any member of the House or the Senate enables them to send anything that is published in the congressional record free of postage to I believe it's just to their own constituents, but you're talking about something like 750,000 people yep. in the House, and you're talking about every single resident uh, and voter of your state if you're a member of the Senate. So it would be better to get to a member of the Senate. Which could be like 45 House. million people in California. Exactly. All right. So the question is, are either of the senators from the state of California the best candidate? I don't think so. I think that there needs to be very, very careful study of the members of the House and Senate space-related committees. I believe that's something like science, space science and technology committee or something like that. Um, I think we need to do some serious research to determine who is the best candidate. And ideally, again, it would be a senator because the franking privilege uh, would cover every single resident of their state. Let me, Barbara, let me, ask, to, let, let me ask you a dumb question, okay? You keep talking about we need to research and get the right person, all that. My attitude would be no single point failure. Every person listening has two senators and at least one congressman. No matter where you are in the United States, I would pepper the realm with information with video links with this show with white papers i wouldn't narrow the focus i would broaden it because all it takes is one but if you use the thistle principle remember thistles propagate by blowing thousands and one or two maybe survive all you need is one but to find the one it may be someone who's not even connected publicly 
with interest in this that privately it just sparked something through social media and suddenly they're your champion. They're your courageous House member or senator that's going to take this and run with okay. it. Okay, but there's the other side of the coin is also serious, and that is from hard experience with the 9-11 Lawyers Committee and the 9-11 Truth Movement. Um, we tried that tact, and we had a bunch of crazy-sounding people going to see their congresspersons um, talking about truly far-out theories about 9-11. I think that the message it's fine to have multiple points of contact with members of Congress about this. If you and this group formats that message very clearly so it's the same message that's delivered. So we basically write a brief script. Yeah, you write talking points. Okay, talking and, points. And with links and everything. It needs, it, the work needs to be done by you. Earth. Oh, well, of course. I have nothing else I'm doing. Okay. Yeah, I know you <laughs> Okay, because uh, I want to bring Georgia on, A, because she hasn't said a word, and she's got some amazing thoughts given her background as an artist. I wanted to address the metaphysics of the moon, Earth-moon system. Then I want to close out by going back to, to Andrew, has something very important on the constituency political front to kind of wrap up the, the evening. So, Georgia, you've been listening patiently and you've, you've been <laughs> yes, I have. you've been distilling metaphysical artistic <laughs> thoughts please grace us with your beneficence oh jeez okay. <laughs> um if everybody will look at your number 13 i want a, a couple of comments on that and also uh your number 16 and 18 but let's start with number 13 if you look at that painting, and, I, and you're going to have to enlarge it, uh, if you look at that particular painting, uh, the first thing that an artist would look at would be, ah, well, they're using something that a lot of artists use, which is opposites on the color wheel. If you want something to pop, you put the shadows in the opposite color of the color wheel than the highlights, and orange and blue are opposites on the color wheel. So, yeah, okay, that's very, very nice and uh, easily explained. However, if you really look at those colors, and, and let me give you a couple of technical terms here. Chroma is the term used to depict not only the particular color, but how much color is in the mix. A tint is that chroma mixed with white. We would call it pastel. A shade is that same color mixed with black. So if you look at every color in that painting, it is exactly, uh, exactly like the picture of the moon. Yes. Ding, now, ding, wait ding, a minute. Ding, ding. now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. To mix one color to the exact chroma and uh, saturation is maybe coincidence. Not every single one of them. They're this exact same saturation as well as uh, color and quality. And not only do we see that in, less, in um, 
painting 13. But he did the same thing. I mean, you can't mix color that accurately unless it's purposeful. Mm -hmm. Look at number 16 and number 18. He did the same thing there. And he showed you what he was doing because look at the landscape of Taurus Litro, the moon surface where Gene Cernan was walking. I know. The I mean, the, the, the probability of mixing color that precisely, I mean, a pink is, is not like another pink. To bring it to that exact mixture of chroma and whiteness. And, okay, and what I'm going to do brain. after the show, Keith, is I'm going to send you a, a 13A, which is how being described, how he created that painting. And it was after, he literally admits in this paragraph, this peroration, that it was after years of soul searching and putting it away and then getting back in touch and how it, in other words, it was his decision to come out of the closet, to use a very important term. If you look at 18, again, the, the colors in the photograph are exactly the same as the colors in the painting, not just a color to a color, mm -hmm. but the exact quality of the chroma and the tint to it and all of that. I and, mean, and, and that's an official NASA picture of Taurus Litro. All I did was change the saturation and put back in what NASA had taken out 50 years ago. The other thing that I noticed was one of Robert's uh, uh, choices, number two, the Alan Bean's original painting, Full Frame. Uh, I don't know if you covered this or not, but, you know, the texture, it, it's been talked about the texture underneath all of his paintings is, is this very thick gesso, um, which gives it that, that, that structure and texture. In this particular painting, the thing that struck me was if you look at the figure and what he's walking toward, the hill that he's walking toward, there's a square there. Yep, that looks like a door. Mm -hmm. And that's not part of the gesso background. That shadow along the left-hand side is painted in. Well, because those are not hills. Those are shattered arcologies. They're honeycombed with rooms and cubicles. You can see this on other imagery. And again, Bean was a very acute observer, and he coded levels deep much more information than just the color of the moon. Absolutely. And, and like that Richard is... Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters, he gets this image yep, in his yep, mind. Yep, 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 yep. And, and it's so evident in that square shape on the <laughs> hillside. It's not even funny. Geometry, Sagan, geometry. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to mention was um, uh, one of Andrew's comments that was was uh, was being uh, uh, shown pictures, color pictures of the moon to get those colors so perfect. Uh, again, that just can't be coincidence. And Jonathan uh, earlier made the comment about the moon's auric effects, the the quality of the moon itself having an effect upon the consciousness. All living things have an auric field, and the moon would be one of them. And it certainly would affect anyone that would uh, enter into that field. 
Wow. May I say something of uh, yeah, of course, regarding sir. this? Of course, yeah. uh, uh, hi, George. Hi. Nice to hear you. You uh, too. Oh, a wonderful explanation of uh, chroma and uh, color scheme. But just tonight, I've made a, another interesting discovery, and it is—it's an association between the ripples. You know, the moon, the ripples in the photograph, Jonathan's uh, second photograph, moon ripples. That's my reference. We were talking earlier this week about the striations there, and whether or not they were. Uh, artifacts of the processing or actual striations on across surfaces seen in those photographs. And just by chance, I thought that they could be shadows of cables, parallel cables hanging over the surface. One explanation. But then I went to Alan Bean's uh, photo uh, painting of, uh, I think it's your number 13, Richard's number 13. No, wait, 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 wait. wait. Let's not leave that because that's Ron's amazing contribution tonight that he didn't get a chance to present. Yeah, right. These these linear things, we've seen them before on Apollo imagery. Right. And they are cables. I think they're parallel cables. I I know they're cables because I've looked at a million pictures starting with Apollo 10, and they're not that far from the spacecraft. There's actual objects on them. They change angle of light with refraction like they well, re- they refract space above and well, light get ready below for a big surprise richard get ready for a big surprise uh, photo number 13 the the same photograph that um georgia has been uh, discussing and analyzing i want you to enlarge it and i want you to look into the visor of the astronaut and oh, you'll yeah. see yeah. Yeah, I'm, the I'm, reflection, I'm, 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 those same lines yep, are depicted yep, yep, on I'm, his... Uh, totally his, agree. Totally uh, agree. Yes, yes. But the other important part, I, I've worked with the original uh, photograph of this same painting. And the interesting thing is the floor. He's looking down into a well, a pit, that's got all kinds of stuff in it that doesn't look like stuff that Apollo took to the moon. And uh, perhaps at another time we'll do a wait, program. Wait, which image are you talking about? Uh, number 13. You have oh, to okay. enlarge it and look at his space helmet, the reflection in his space helmet. Right. You'll see the striation, uh, parallel lines all across the top as if it's above him. But then in the, in the, front, in the lower part of the, of the sun shield is reflected a pit in the ground with all kinds of artifacts around it that don't look like stuff that are Okay, that, that rectangular thing at the bottom of the faceplate in reflection, mm-hmm. that's the camera that's on his chest. But, every, no, no. but everything no. above that in, uh-huh. the, in, the, in the visor to the horizon, uh-huh. yeah. that could be what you're saying is something different. Yeah, that's a pit and stuff on the ground. That uh, So we should work on the original. Um, I have it in my archives. The other part is in another copy of a similar photograph, the reflector in the upper right-hand corner is reflecting something like the tower in the sky or something, a UFO. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There's a lot of uh, good work to be done with those. Uh, I don't think this was unconscious. Really- I think this was a deliberate oh. uh, mutiny by the crews to all get together and let Bean be their visual, imaginative, fantastic spokesperson in a total plausible deniability fashion to get it on the record while they were all alive. 
It sounds like a reasonable thesis. And Richard, another another thing about your number 13 is if you zoom in, like people just um, enlarge it, look at the slices of color on his uniform. I mean, there are rectilinear shapes, like cutting across the fabric of his uniform. Like they were projections and, of the geometry in the dome yes. glass that you see in the Apollo 17 image when the color is put back in. Yeah, and if he is making a transition here of, okay, either, as we keep saying, a leaking or you know something unconscious or a deliberate, I'm doing this, then he looks like he's sit literally under your Spanish glass mm-hmm. or under you know i mean richard you know the moon is looking more and more i put this in the chat box like a crystal chandelier in the night sky i mean this thing is unbelievable if this is what we're seeing well i can't imagine well actually i can <laughs> what it looked like when it was new oh my god but i've compared it to a multi faceted spiny sea urchin and I actually used an image of a comparison a few shows ago to show that this thing probably had towers and skyscrapers and protrusions in a weird geometry. And it's all been eroded down because of the eons it's been exposed. But there's enough left on the far side that it's going to make the uh, Artemis guys when they land and gals at the South Pole, where on the near side there's a lot left, all they have to do – Back to Ron and how you tell a hologram from just random stuff. All they have to do is show us live video as they walk under the dome at the South Pole lit by a slightly angled sun, almost horizontal. And it's going to – if it's a holographic thing, you'll see these images in the sky against black change. It's going to be amazing provided they're not censored. By the way, Richard, I think we're hitting a chord tonight. One of your listeners, Mario, great guy, he says, fantastic show tonight. Thank you so much. It's our Christmas present, folks. And I would love to get find somebody that would 3D model the, the dome, as you describe it, Richard, and we <clears throat> could look at it Mr. and orbit around Mr. it. Mr. Womack. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Of course. That. <laughs> your mission. Should you, why do you think it's called the Enterprise Mission? Because we can't sit in our cans and do nothing. That's why Barbara's here. Um, now, let, let me go back to John, uh, not John, but to Andrew. Because, Andrew, you and I talked again offline before the show. We've got this incredible opportunity, eight civilians, artists, who we need to literally mount organized campaigns to get them to when they go to the moon – unfettered by NDAAs, any laws, any government strictures, anything they might sign, and we need to tell them don't sign anything, they will see all of this in real time, and they have the technology to send it to the world. They can become the saviors of humankind if they so choose that as their mission. And they are accessible, I assume, Richard. I have as not as yet like looked deeply into these people. I find it absolutely fascinating that artists would be chosen. And I know we've talked about this a few years back. That was the whole intent of the mission. But the question is, 
Why? Why not bring? They're, they're planetary court reporters. Yes. Exactly. And visual, visual people who use their eyes and probably have a some kind of imagination as well. See, I want to play kind of matchmaker because I'm thinking that Andrew, you should go after the British photographer who has got the skills to record, and you're part of that community, the imaging Hollywood graphic community. If you open hailing frequencies and then hand her off, if you want, to me, I think we could do a one-two, you know, do-si-do here and get her primed for what she could do single-handedly by just looking out the damn window. No, I definitely will reach out to her. I mean, we have the information, so, and I know she's she's a public person. They are, they must all be, right? So, well, they're performers, can... of course, and they're on social media. I'm sure yes. they're on some whatever mangled version of Twitter is going on. Which brings me, by the way, to Musk, because if these eight civilians represent the doorway, the gateway to a whole new future for humankind. And we didn't spend anywhere near enough time talking about what the implications, the real world practical implications of this are going to be, let alone the consciousness implications. But we have more shows coming, so we will. If that's all true, then every member of this audience all over the world using social media can track down and communicate with every one of these artists, astronauts going to the moon a la Musk, regardless of what's been happening to Musk to basically deter him from his prime mission, which is nothing more, nothing less, liberating humankind from slavery and bondage that we've been under for who knows how many eons. Yeah, 100%. You know, there was a lot of uh, hubbub about his outfit that he wore on Halloween. And I know, Richard, you and I chatted briefly about this, and it was red. I mean, everybody was saying, oh, it's very, very satanic, and <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, look closely, folks. It's red. It's a uniform. It's like armor. And there's a ram on the front chest. And what's the ram? Aries. Mars. Yeah, yeah. the symbol of Mars. See, again, when you, when, you, when you can comparison the potential psychological or subliminal or unconscious memories of someone like Bean, who was physically there, with the conscious program of the astronauts as engineers to get the word out, to get the truth out, to fight against the suppression, and then you look at the objective data they brought home, the photographs, I mean, compare 14 – and 15, my 14 and 15. 14 is what we've been living with for 50 years. 15 is what was really there. All we've done is bring out the color that was in 14. Anybody can do that. Download it, put it in an imaging program, and just turn up the saturation and bingo. Now, if you want to get a little more sophisticated, you go back to the NASA headquarters website, which is called the Apollo Surface Journal. And you find that number, you download that image into your program, turn up the saturation, and bingo, there is the real moon that Alan Bean has been trying to tell us about, like Emily Dickinson, for decades. Click, click, someone's typing. Hey, we've got two minutes. 
Who wants to close off the show with the appropriate Christmas ending? Well, I suggest you all. Peace and greetings to all. God bless you all. And rejoice in Christmas. Well, I'm in mind of the, you know, three wise men who were really magi, magicians, and their trek to Bethlehem, which I used to do at the planetarium over and over again every Christmas. And in those days, we had no idea of the real solar system that we are surrounded with. So I just thought it kind of appropriate that on this Christmas, we give everybody what I think is the best Christmas present you can imagine, which is a hopeful future, not one of gloom and doom and dismal prognostications, but a window, a gateway. Isn't it interesting how NASA has chosen to call its lunar space station a gateway? So until next Christmas Eve, next week, next Saturday, and me and Robert Morningstar, and then Christmas Day itself, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Merry Christmas, everyone, and good night, all. Oh.